Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Rigger Podcast Network. Brought to you, as always, by ZipRecruiter. You know it's not smart. Going against the Pats in the playoffs. I tried to tell you last week, it's not smart. You can do it. You might. It might work out for you. It's not necessarily smart. You know what else isn't smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Luckily, there's a smart way at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. to find people with the right skills for your job. Actively invite them to apply. Check it out. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, Callaway is pushing not just the boundaries of driver technology, but ball speed. They're pushing that further than humanly possible. Check out the new Epic Flash Driver with Flash Face technology featuring Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. What? The way speed has been created, just throw it out. We have a new way to create speed. It's been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI. We're also brought to you by The Rewatchables, my favorite podcast. I love it more than this one. I'm sorry. It's my, this is my mistress now. I'm all about The Rewatchables. No, just kidding. I'll always love this one the most. It has my name in it. But The Rewatchables, we did Old School this week. We have The Fast and The Furious coming up next week and a whole bunch of good ones coming up. People like that podcast. Check out our Facebook group for it. As well, coming up, we are going to talk to Joe House about Kyrie Irving and what leadership means in 2019 about uh, House's revamp golf podcast. And also, um, we're going to do some conference championship picks. And then, one of the great screenwriters in the history of this world, Aaron Sorkin. Been dying to have him come on. He's a legend. We're going to talk a few good men. We're going to talk West Wing. We're going to talk Sports Night. We're going to talk... Social network. Oh, man, we're doing it all. It was such a pleasure to have him on. That's all coming up first. Our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, we have Aaron Sorkin coming up in a little bit. Right now, another one of the greatest screenwriters of our generation, Joe House. House, how are you? I'm I'm fantastic. Uh, although my uh, football picks movie lately has been pretty crappy. Well, thank God, thank you for staying off uh, the parlay I did last week with the with the Saints and the Patriots, and then the incredible hedge I did. I don't know. I I might have used up all my gambling luck for the playoffs last week. We're gonna talk about football in a second. Wanted to mention. Your golf podcast is coming back next week. We are retitling it and reconfiguring a little bit, and we need a title. We need a title for your golf podcast. We need a new title, and we have a lot of options and possibilities, but nothing that we love. So what we were thinking was maybe we would go to the Twitter, as you call it, and go and have people tweet title ideas to at house from DC, and you can sort it out for yourself all weekend. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I, I love it, uh, and maybe it would be helpful to talk about the concept. This is going to be a golf podcast that sort of covers all walks of, of golf life. We're, we're doing everything from, from Tiger Woods to, to transfusions, and I'm not talking about Tiger's back therapy there. I'm talking about the, <laughs> the beverage. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a rotating cast of, of Ringer and Callaway peeps. We got Megan Schuster, who's already a heavy contributor on the ringer golf beat we got Ke- kevin clark's coming on he's a he's a golf gambling d- 
degenerate. I know that that Chris Vernon's involved. He he's a he's a life degenerate. Uh, and I've, then famous TV personality covering covering the golf and 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 football. Amanda Balionis making some appearances, I believe. And then uh, unpaid ringer intern Nathan Hubbard's going to be on there every once in a while. And and then um, from the degenerate trifecta, I think you have to have Harry on at least once, right? Yeah, Harry and I love to talk uh, golf gambling. It's mainly been by by way of text and and uh, email in the past with with the with the cuz playing conduit on it. But I know Harry is a is a deep golf gambling devotee, and then we're hopeful we should have some 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 different decent guests. There's a lot of folks in the Ringer universe that enjoy the golf. Uh, we heard uh, n- none other than than the Winging It podcast guys. Yeah, uh, Vince Carter and Kent Bazemore. I mean, I think Bays likes golf more than he likes basketball. So we don't have a title we love. We kind of liked House Money. We liked, I think we some of them. I'm just going to read some titles we threw out. Maybe America can decide they like them. Halfway House, which we decided sounded like a, a VH1 reality show, but uh, we like that. Something with Mulligan. Maybe we were in on that. Scramble House. I mean, these are all really terrible. You wanted to call it Leave the Flag Stick in, Leave the Flag Stick in, The Legend of Bagger House. <laughs> <laughs> um, hold on, I have a couple more because our friend, uh, our friend Nathan sent us a couple. Oh, what was the what was the last? Quiet, please. We had that one, which you you yeah, like that. Be- and I- go ahead. Well, I was going to say you like the the board. Somebody holding up. I the like board. the paddle. Where the- there isn't really the, the the most important thing, as far as I'm personally concerned, is to have something that I can yell. Yeah, uh, you know that that I it, it's it's crucial to the success of the podcast that that I have a name that that you know I can torture everybody with. Um, so that 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 that's uh, quiet. Please didn't quite fit that. I mean, it's a little too. Uh, one of our one of our colleagues observed it's a little too Tennessee. Right. The zipper zone um, was rejected by all parties. We decided that <laughs> couldn't be the thing. But if you have an idea, send it to House from DC with a little at in front of it. He's on the Twitter. That's, who That's we call the Twitter. It. And then uh, if you come up with the name, we'll shout you out on on this uh, on this podcast and on the other podcast. And maybe we'll send you, I don't know what, some Callaway golf balls. Well, we'll we send definitely them? send some Callaway golf balls. Probably a T-shirt. We'll get a T-shirt going. T-shirt something. A yeah. frame, a yeah. frame picture, definitely some balls. A frame yeah. picture. I mean, what's wrong? And- I like breakfast balls, but you know, it's a little too over the edge. Breakfast balls? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty good name. What do you call the thing in the golf with the with the breakfast when uh, it's like a breakfast scramble? What am I thinking? What do you of? mean? What's the what's the golf? It's like a little tournament. It's like a gimmick tournament. It has breakfast in the title. Oh, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure that I'm. No, I I'm thought there was there, one there of is them. Shotgun start. Yeah, that can't be the title. Shotgun start. <laughs> well, I mean, with Joe that House. is the thing I think you're describing. It is like early morning, and all of the foursomes have to be out on the co- course playing. You know, commencing the round at the same time, so everybody can get around. That's called shotgun start. I also kind of liked House of One. Like a hole yeah, in one, but in house one. of one. Like a hole in one, but house house in one? Of, house of one, house in one. It's not the worst. House in one. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we got we thank our good good pals at Callaway for for bringing us back. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we actually uh, I was going to mention they have some new stuff coming out that we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, want to talk about Kyrie Irving really quick? <laughs> yes. Zach and I talked about him the other day about the whole leadership thing and uh, being a little little dubious of of Kyrie just repeatedly railing against the young guys in the team. Then he pulled a oh, weird well, I- power trip last night where he told the story about how he called LeBron. And I don't feel like I'm paraphrasing this or misrepresenting it, but it was basically like, oh, I was young once and super hungry and wanted everything. The way he phrased it was perfectly fine. And now I realize looking back that I was probably tough to handle for LeBron. And so I wanted to get his input on that. And the implication looking through it was, oh, you're having trouble with really ambitious, headstrong people in their early 20s. And you were once that person with LeBron James. So now you're calling him to see how to handle it. But really saying that he's playing with these ambitious people in their early 20s who need to settle the fuck down. He doesn't say that. It's all positive. But I, it just was yet another dig at the Tatum-Brown generation. What was your take on that whole thing? Well, the piece of it that I enjoyed was this equivalent equivalency. Like... Is he telling us indirectly that he fancies himself to occupy the same status and stature as as LeBron James? Is does he is he like that? That's a that's a false equivalency. Um, is the way that I would think about it. Uh, and you guys made I I was lucky enough to be uh on the heat check this week with Juan Gon yeah, John Gonzalez. I heard it, and I made this the the point that you and, and Zach made as as well. That's that's the single most sort of compelling aspect of this. Who the F told Kyrie that he's a leader of men? What he's great at is basketball. And yeah. he's super duper great at scoring the basketball. But you know, this is the same problem. I've been railing against this here in Washington with my point guard, John Wall, because there is this um this tension, this very uh, you know tough position that teams find themselves in, when they make a huge trade for a guy like the Celtics did for Kyrie, or what the Wizards did at drafting John Wall number one, just because he's really good at that singular skill of being you know kind of a, a basketball court leader, and you know the the thing that made distinguishes both of them as top 10 picks doesn't mean that they can motivate guys, that they can be leader of guys, that they've done anything to to earn those guys' respect in terms of like basic motivation and, and management kind of concepts. So I, 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 having watched it here in Washington for a couple of years, and it's, it is going to be a failure. If they, they can't trade John Wall, this team is mm. doomed to 37 wins a season as the ceiling. Um, I, I I rub my hands together with glee to observe it in Boston. Well, so I feel bad because I do feel like Kyrie's stuff is coming from a genuine place. I, I, I agree. just don't think I think he's twenty six and he doesn't really understand the concept of leadership like maybe he thinks he does. But we're also putting twenty six year old people in a position to be leader of men with the contracts they get with the way they are treated by the media and by fans, they have their own shoe. He's made the game winning shot in the finals, all this stuff. Like he probably does think he's a leader. My point is he's doing a really bad job at it because being the leader of a basketball team is actually how you handle things that you and I would never know what's going on. 
So this is the the curious thing to me. He and John Wall both share this trait. They're self-appointed leaders. The the folks that should be intervening and interceding and you know tapping the brakes a little bit on that are, are the franchises. Like it's the team that should be somebody that Kyrie trusts at the Celtics um, should be having a sit down with him and helping him think about the big picture. I admire Kyrie's thoughtfulness and the the depth and breadth of of his kind of um, approach approach to this. But he, he, he's, he just kind of doesn't get it. And you just made a great observation. He's 26 years old. What would he know about like actually leading people? He well, played he would one also, year in college and he played half a season. Right. And, and maybe his experience with LeBron and some, there's some do's and don'ts with that, that you kind of learn as it goes along. Oh, if I ever get in this spot, I won't do that. Or, oh, that's a good thing that he just did. But in general, I, I think it's really hard to be the leader of a basketball team in 2019 with all the shit that can cause the team to go sideways. But I look at it like, all right, who were the good leaders? This is what I tweeted today in the morning about, you know, like Tim Duncan, by all accounts, incredible leader. You never heard Tim Duncan say jack shit to the media. He could he could not have been less interested in ever saying anything. Steve Nash was another one. Nash, in the mid-2000s, was the leader of some really complicated Suns teams that played hard but also had really big personalities and had Amara Stoudemire and Sean Marion together and Sean Marion, who was just consistently positioned as this kind of third wheel. He does all the dirty work. He doesn't get a lot of shots. And that would be a hard thing for manage to manage from time to time. You have Amari who doesn't guard anybody, who is definitely a mercurial personality. I think a really like teammate. But an interesting guy to play with. And then a bunch of really powerful, you know, role player personalities like Raja Bell and Quentin Richardson, like big personalities. And Nash navigated that and they had this nice run where they almost made the finals basically every year for five years. Shaq comes in, then it kind of runs its course. Then it comes back in 2010 with probably the least talented of those Suns teams. And that was a great leadership team by him where- yeah. You know, it was like he the was tail end of Amari. for that moment. Yeah, and Jared Dudley. And, and it was just like, it was all the person out of him. And my point is like, he didn't he didn't litigate through the press. And he didn't say stuff like, you know, Joe Johnson has to learn what it takes to win a championship. Like, I just don't feel like you have to say stuff like that ever. And if you do yeah, say I, it, I, say it behind closed doors. I don't know why you're telling like the fucking dude with the microphone in front of you. What's the point? I so, thought you were... There, there was a name missing from your list. I saw your tweet, and I thought it was a little disrespectful to to the hometown crew. How how could Kevin Garnett go not go on that list? I mean, he, talk about a guy that that led by example. He should have. I should have had him on there. You're right. I had okay, I had good. Steph Curry. I mean, Duncan's the best example, but I had Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki later later in his career as he really started to figure it out. And you're right, KG should have been on there too. I think, you know, K, KG's. <laughs> Uh, intense he is yeah. but he is he's not but somebody he, that had any use for the media um but you never heard him i i just never liked the whole thing of these guys don't understand what it takes it's so condescending you know well there's it, just no point in talking why does he have to talk he doesn't that that's my whole right. point with this whole thing it's like yeah you have these games where you have the 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 microphones in your face after and your team's obviously going through some up and downs you don't have to talk about it. 
like he felt like he had to talk about whatever happened on Saturday with Gordon Hayward and um, where he got mad at the final play and he's explaining his side of the story. Um, does he have to? Because then the media is like, right. well, Kyrie wasn't accountable after the game. I personally don't really care. I care more about is is this team going to be generating a story every four days where it's like, what the fuck is this now? Wait, wait, that felt like a dig at Tatum Brown and the other guys. Philly's in the same spot. Jimmy Butler's another guy who probably just shouldn't give press conferences. It's like just keep well, just every time you're talking, it's it feels like I can interpret it one way or the other. Like what what are you gaining out of this? It is very interesting and telling that both of those players are in the same contract position, which is they are essentially auditioning right now this season yeah. for what they both hope to be is a mega max extension for both of them. And I honestly believe that neither one of those two guys, I said this on on uh, the heat check this week, I don't think that Kyrie Irving is going to be on the Boston Celtics. I put it at 50-50 at best. And I think there's there is a decreasing likelihood that Jimmy Butler is going to be on the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, now, the thing that it, it, I, I, I'm tapping the brakes a little bit uh, because yeah. it's January and, yeah. you know, all of the basketball is in front of us. Like, let's wait till April. Let's wait till May when we start seeing these teams in the playoffs. Agree. And the true contribution and value and the leadership capacity of those two dudes is really built to shine. It's in the playoffs. It's in that. That's where we'll see some leadership of men. So I'm recognizing that this. It's a little silly the observation I'm making. But as we sit here right now, both of those guys are not helping their case for the Mega Max extension. Yeah, well, the difference is Kyrie's going to get it. I I think Butler is costing himself tens of millions of dollars with with how this season has played out. I just don't see how anybody could sign him to the max at this point. I I'm sympathetic to those guys, and I really uh, we're being critical, but I'm also I don't I'm not trying to crush these guys, and I'm not not trying to do the uh, I I'm in one corner like really doing my hard take. I'm I'm put my feet down and I'm not doing that. I'm what I'm saying is to me this is a more philosophical thing. What do these guys have to gain from talking to the press and being that candid? I don't really understand that part in 2019. Like I would just be like after these games, yeah man, it's disappointing. Be boring. Be, be- like in a way you should almost be Belichick. Like Belichick was ahead of his time with this stuff. I don't think there's any real upside with Kyrie candidly talking about the deficiencies of his team. I can see the deficiencies. I'm watching it. I know that the shot selection's bad, and I'm sure the young guys are struggling with their minutes. But then when he's talking about it so openly, I don't know how that helps. I don't think Jalen Brown was like, do you think Jalen Brown was like, you know... I wasn't really sure if if Kyrie was right, but then when he talked to those 10 reporters and threw me under the bus, that made me realize he was right. It's <laughs> fucking ridiculous. So he, here's the in- incredible thing, and I'm very, very disappointed that I'm not smart enough to have uh, anticipated some of this. We had the opportunity. We were sitting on a stage in July of 2018 with the general manager of the Darryl Houston Murray. Rockets. Yeah. Daryl Morey. And we we had the opportunity, like one of the questions that you sort of put out there was, what what do we think, how do we think teams are going to be um, innovating? Like what, how, how, as teams kind of reinvent their approach to success, what kinds of things might they be emphasizing? And I, I regret not being prescient enough 
to ask about this dynamic that we're experiencing right now with with Kyrie and Jimmy. And the same thing is true in my own. I, I have to always relate things to the Wizards with with John Wall, where like in in sort of a basic management, a basic running of a business kind of way. Uh, well, by the way, there's more than that. I'm uh, interrupting you quickly. Like New Orleans, Anthony please. Davis. Um, there's other examples right. of this too, where Anthony Davis says, God, it's so hard. I, I just have to do so much every night for us to win. It's like, why are you saying that? <laughs> if I'm your teammate, how does that make me feel? And what is the well, goal I, of that? I think Anthony Davis is different in, in, in the sense that, uh, he is setting the stage for what he wants to accomplish via free agency. I get it. I still don't like he, it. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Positions. Keep going. No, it's okay. I just, I'm, I'm really interested in what the internal dynamic is because in like a basic business sense, um, you know, the, the, the culture by which, um, leaders are raised and identified in the first place, identified and then raised and, and managed and how leaders are sort of groomed to, to, uh, you know, be successful with the folks around them, like that trust, that basic building of trust. The weird thing with the NBA is the pecking order is out of order. Like just because John Wall was picked number one doesn't mean he's capable of leading. Just because the Celtics traded what they traded to get Kyrie in the fold and Kyrie is their best scorer, what 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 about that makes him fit to be speaking about, you know, the direction of the team and and Jimmy Butler, uh, you know what he did in Minnesota and what he's doing now in Philadelphia. He's an important player to the success of both of those franchises. But why are the franchises tolerating you know this this and I and I some of it is probably just this the the nature of um, the 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 communication uh, options that folks have available to them. Like it's not that the team can tell Jimmy Butler to shut up. He can go on any. TV show, he can go on Twitter, he can go on Instagram and say whatever he's going to say, and maybe that's the challenge. And to be fair, Jimmy Butler hasn't done that much so far, but they he did have some sort of something with with a, in a team meeting, and then talked about it pretty candidly after. But that team seems less happy since he showed up. I think can just they're they're figuring something out. Yeah, they're that's figuring for sure. they're figuring something out. But you know, I lo- I look at uh, a team like Brooklyn. That seems happy. I don't really know who their leader is. I don't really think it matters, but I know that they're all on the same page and they play hard and they all kind of say and do the right things. I think, I think the once, same thing true of the Clippers. Yeah, although that's starting to that's starting to flip. Well, no, but but that playing hard thing. Like yeah, nobody yeah. questions their effort. I this was something Kobe used to do a lot, and he would do it during. I mean, he was probably the worst offender of it after Shaq left when the team was basically a 500 team for three years and Kobe was lecturing everybody on what he needed from from the other people. And then they, when they actually got the right people around him and he was still doing it, it was actually the right people around him to do it. You know, he had like Pau Gasol, he could just like bully him and do whatever. And Lamar Odom was just so grateful to um, be on a good team and have his life in pretty good shape at that point. And then Kobe could just pontificate about leadership. I really feel like leadership, part of leadership is is not talking about how great of a leader you are. It's weird. Um, hear my thoughts on leadership? It's fucking strange. You're a basketball player. Right. Um, right. I think the right. ones that have succeeded over the years are the ones that don't talk about it. But just in general, motivating people by publicly pointing out their faults is a weird way to do it. Like, 
if I, if like, if I was like, you know, this podcast, I'm sorry what's happened guys, but, uh, you know, some people got to learn how to produce a really good podcast. And, you know, we got a lot of young people in this production thing, like nephew Kyle, who hasn't really been here and he's just got to step it up and mm-hmm. he's just got to learn what it takes year round. And like, Kyle Beck, what the fuck? Why are you saying that? <laughs> Go back to just making fun of me for breaking up and getting back together with my girlfriend 40 times. Like they, you don't have to get personal. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll write that down. Uh, no, it's just weird. I, I I think I don't think it's ever been weirder to follow a basketball team day in and day out than it is in 2019. Everything gets blown out of proportion. Everything is is even this thing Kyrie said. He was trying to be magnanimous yesterday, and it still felt like a dig. And we're talking about it right now. I just wouldn't say. My advice would be don't say anything. No more interviews. Well, I love it. I want him to keep talking, and I hope <laughs> that it continues to sow seeds of unrest and dissension in the Celtics. Yeah, I really, really uh, resent that comment. Hey, you know what I don't resent, House? Callaway. They keep pushing the boundaries of driver technology, pushing ball speed further than humanly possible. The new epic flash driver with flash face technology features Callaway's first ever driver face engineered with artificial intelligence. By harnessing this power, Callaway was able to create, test, and refine over 15,000 different faces to find the absolute fastest one. The way speed has been created has been completely transformed. Learn more at callawaygolf.com slash AI. Maybe we should call it the Flash Face Podcast with Joe House. Welcome to <laughs> Flash Face. <laughs> I just, I'd just be too worried about people um, calling it the ass face podcast, making a joke out of it. Yeah. Sp- speaking of name, I have a quick thing on this driver. They they make a big point about the artificial intelligence, the AI. If you're going to do anything with AI, isn't the name the answer? If you're going to do AI, mm. and AI is going to be a big part of your of your push, got the name's got to be the answer, right? Well, I think you should call it Flash Face, but I think your nickname because you love giving nicknames to something that already has a nickname. <laughs> That's you, true. You call it the answer, flash face technology, but then say the answer. Let's. Uh, yeah, for me, it's going to be the answer. The colors are not my thing. This is like Green Bay Packer or this uh, this uh, uh, Premier League soccer club, Norwich City Canaries. It's like this green and yellow. Yeah. But fortunately, you can custom you can custom color. So I'm going to get it murdered out. I'm going all black. I like that. So yeah, speaking of answers, all black. We have the conference championships coming up this weekend. My beloved Patriots are playing the late game in Kansas City. The early game will be New Orleans hosting the Rams of Los Angeles. Last week, million-dollar picks. I lost a little. I lost uh, 650000 I'm down $1.225 million for the playoffs, but for the season, I'm up $3.11 million. And uh, That's a W. That's and, a win. Any which way you cut it, $3.1 million to the plus is good. Well... I hit on the Pat Saints money tease last week, which I should have put more on, but um, I still feel let down by the Colts. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to hold it against them all year, but I still don't understand what What the hell happened to Andrew Luck? I don't know. It it, It was a mystery. I lost in the ZFL because I overinvested in Andrew Luck, so I I resent it. So Saints minus three and a half against the Rams. Sal and I did guess the lines on Sunday night, and I guessed, I think, six and a half for this. That was a field goal. Wow. I really thought Vegas would be behind the Saints. I was really confused by it. And when Sal told me the real line, I was like, well, that's great. I think the Saints should be six and a half point favorites. 
did all the research, spent the last four days diving into it. And my instinct going into it was I'm taking the Saints. I love them at home. They're 6-0 and in home playoff games with Breeze and Peyton. Um, they've all season have figured out just ways to pull out games. Even last week, a game they were down 14 to nothing. If you look at the yardage in the first downs, they had 10 more first downs. They out they outgained the Eagles by 200 and something yards. And if Lutz hits the 52-yard field goal, the, game, the game's over. The Eagles don't even have that last drive. I have all of that. I'm leaning toward the Rams' house. Oh, interesting. So I'm going to make the case for you. Good. You have 10 minutes to talk me out of it, or maybe eight. Okay. First of all, I think it's an either team can win game. I like it in the extra half point. The more I study well, let me, this. Let me tap the brakes. Okay. Every site that I see right now has it down to three. Really? Since when? Yes. I just looked like an hour ago. I'm looking at, well, the Action Network has it at three. Had it opened at three and a half, but now down to three. Um, the shares pool site that I use, scores and odds also. The, just the handful of places that I that I look at, I see it at three right now. I have on two different online sites that I'm not going to mention that I use <laughs> every time. Or but I have it at three and a half. All right, hold on. I'm going on, on a public gambling site that I also like to use, and I want to see what it says right now. Boy, this is exciting podcasting right here. Three and a half. Three and a half. You're right. I'm three sticking with three and a half. Oh, well, it's important. That half point means a lot. Well, also, I feel like it hasn't really publicly shifted down to three yet. So if some are okay. getting at three, whatever, I'm still taking the three and a half. This is a total Colin Okay, Coward good. Move. It's available. You can take the three and a half. It is, public, it is available on a betting site right yeah. this second. Well, thanks. Thanks for letting me take the bet I was already going to take. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it feels like an either or game, which I like. So the Rams have already played there and they lost 45 to 35, right? How do you feel they about did. how do you feel about the team that's already lost but they played the team? I think is the more I have 2019 has unfolded for me, I feel like it's an advantage for the loser. So we saw that with Chargers Ravens. Um my daughter's soccer tournament last week Beat beat a team handily on Saturday, two nothing. But then ended up playing them again in the finals. They were totally ready to for whatever they needed to do. They got a fluky goal in the first half, and then we lost by a goal. But I I realized as we were heading into the game when it was starting, when they knew what we were going to do, I was like, "Fuck! I hate playing a team that I've just played." And I think that helps that helps the uh, Rams more than the Saints. And here's why: the Rams have kind of shifted who they were since that New Orleans game. Like Cooper Cup was in that game. They weren't. Yeah, it was they just Gurley, and that's shift. it. Yeah, well, it was just Gurley, and that's it. Now it's like it's it's Gurley and C.J. Anderson. They have the Josh Reynolds thing. They're relying a little a little more on um, Woods than I think they ever have before. But then defensively, I think they're better because they didn't have Tlaib in the first game, and I think that's a huge part of this. I think if you look at the Rams with Tlaib and without Tlaib, and I think Tlaib's really good. And he's somebody that has, you know, he's been on the Patriots and he's given the Patriots problems. I like him against Michael Thomas. I think Michael Thomas is the best receiver in the league, but he he had 200 plus yards against the Rams last time. That's not going to happen this time. And 
you know, this is a Lombardi point that I just like, where the Rams, for whatever reason, they lost their momentum the first 10 weeks. But it did seem like in that Cowboys game, they had a lot of big-time guys who liked the spotlight of that game. And I keep coming back. If I take if I take the Saints and I'm laying the three and a half and I'm going against Gurley, I'm going against a team that almost ran the ball 50 times last week, I'm going against Sean McVay, I'm going against Aaron Donald, who was a beast last week, who's probably the best player in this game other than Thomas. And then on the flip side, I have the Saints who lost Sheldon Rankins, who is by all counts their best interior lineman. And if you look at like the rush stats when he's on or off the field, it's kind of a disaster. And I, I always feel like when teams lose like their center or their run stopper, it's one of those things we don't really think about. We don't really understand those positions. That really makes me nervous. It's like the worst possible guy for them to lose in this game. And their offense, as everybody has pointed out this week, the stats for the offense, it's not like this is this explosive Saints offense. Um, they, they're like 19 or 20 points a week for the last six. They don't. That's right. They really only have one receiver I love. I really like Kamara. But it just feels like an either-or game to me. And I th- really think you can make the case the Rams come in and run the ball down their throats. And then the last thing I'm going to mention, they haven't played that many games indoors on turf, the Rams, but they're kind of built for turf. It really does kind of feel like a turf team. And uh, I don't know. I, I kept gravitating toward the Saints three and a half, and I just kept getting nervous, thinking like, shit. Now, really, the only reason to do this is Saints 6-0 in playoff games, and I don't trust Jared Goff. So let me ask you, House. If I laid the points and I have Jared Goff in the NFC title game, would you forgive me? No. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> because think about the position that you're in. You're They're down four, which means that the Rams were talking about. There's, there's two and a half minutes left. And Jared Goff uh, has the ball. What is it, what's your feeling? How do you feel about that? Well, how did I feel about it last week with Nick Foles as he was driving down the field on the Saints? And really, Jeffrey should have caught it. And not to yeah, throw that, him under the bus, that but like... Nick Foles. That was... Now, Nick Foles sucked that whole second half. The, he did. The Nick Foles magic, you know, karma. The the football gods looked down and are like, oh, we're going to put an end to this. And then they waited for a very ripe moment to put it to the Eagles fans. Now, look, the Eagles fans have a lot to celebrate that team came up from the ashes. I mean, the Eagles stunk. Yeah, uh, you know they were a 500 team at best in the NFC East, and then the Wentz thing turned out. The Wentz injury turned out to be kind of a godsend and gave them one last sort of glorious run. Um, and they 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 got everything they could get out of that Super Bowl, and then they they validated it. That was a really impressive performance into the playoffs, and they gave the Saints everything the Saints wanted to handle. The football gods looked down and are like, eh, hey, watch this. They, 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 you know, Big Dick Nick has the ball. He hits Jeffrey in the hands. They have tons of time to go score a touchdown, and it goes through his hands into the Saints, and that's it. So that was kind of fun. I kind of enjoyed it as a Redskins fan. They were moving. Um, the, they were moving the ball, though. They were. They were moving the ball. I mean, they were. You know, now look, they scored fourteen points, and they didn't score any more points in the whole rest of the game. Right. Falls so, through a couple, couple picks. That wasn't helping. The, the the bigger picture thing is there's all of this historical precedent that leans 
in favor of the Saints and against the Rams, and including some stuff from from this season. Like the Rams did not cover the spread in any of their last seven regular season games where they played against a team that finished with a winning record. Mm. So they they covered the spread against teams that that didn't finish the season with a winning record, but that's not good. They played three road games this year against teams that finished with winning records. Their record their their ATS zero and three. Zero and three against the spread on in road games against teams that finished with with r- winning records. There's also this stat that is I just love this kind of shit. You know me. The the referee the head referee mm. of the Rams Saints game is a gentleman named Bill Vinovich. I'm not familiar with him, but I'm sure I've seen him on on TV. I couldn't pick him out of a, a, a lineup um, if you told me his name. The Rams, when Bill Vinovich is the head referee, are 0 and 5 straight up and against the spread. In fact, Rams Nation is is onto this. Rams Nation has has created a petition to have the league change. Swap Bill Vinovich out of, of, of the head referee role in this game because they fared so poorly with him as the head referee. Mm. Okay. You know those, I love those kind of nuggets. That's pretty good. The other thing that I'll say to you is, do we have any sense as to whether or not the Saints will be uh, basically telling the Rams their defensive schemes the way that the Cowboys were with the the the, the awful uh, ability to to cover up the signals that that came in, I mean, I are, are the Saints going to give up 400 rushing yards this week the way that the Cowboys did because uh, the Rams will know their play calls as well. Well, and plus it's going to be louder. It's going to be tough to audible out of stuff and things like that. So, Saints are up six. There's like uh, four minutes left. They get a first down on the Philly 33. Field goal wins the game. They just need eight more yards. Kamara runs left tackle for one. Short pass to Ingram for one. Kamara runs right tackle for minus three, settling for the Lutz 52-yard field goal. That's a game, if if you're a great team, I feel like you get a first down on that drive. It worries me that I they totally didn't. I totally agree with you. It really worries me that totally they didn't. Agree. And... You look at some of the stuff they did in that game. They're running plays with uh, with Hill is is involved, and he's running running deep on plays. And they were a yep. little gimmicky trying to get going, which which really scared me. And uh, I don't know. I felt like that game was close. They really could have lost. I think you hit on it though. There there are no great teams in this year's playoffs, as far as I'm personally concerned. Yeah, it's a pretty evenly matched four teams and if you know any one of these four teams winning the Super Bowl say okay that you know congrats to them they they earned it these are the four best teams in the league they distinguish themselves it's it is a rarity that we have one two against one two but they're they are the four best teams and so you know uh pretty evenly matched which is why the lines are all gonna you know I don't know where they'll settle but like right around three three and a half well you just made the case to take the three and a half if everyone's evenly matched yeah, why aren't I taking points the half point is 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 a really a, a uh, hit the pause button 
uh, kind of opportunity. The other thing is I really subscribe to your Sheldon Rankins thing. I think it's going to be Im- immense. And what the Rams just did in terms of ball control and that play action, how, how they were able to set up the play action, that's the best case for Goff. Is yeah. if they're able to create a credi- credible play action opportunity for him, then he's got the time to be back there and get comfortable. If they're if he, if he can't get comfortable, they're effed. The Rams are effed. I mean, this is there's still a little bit of work to do. Sean McVay has got a little ways to go to get Goff up to that uh, upper tier. He's still showing us a little happy feet. He, you can see him get nervous sometimes. Yeah. Um. If they can't, if 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 the Rams establish the run because Rankins is out, then then that makes this game really interesting. Well, and then the other thing is, maybe Dallas is good. And maybe that Rams victory was more impressive than we realized last week. Dallas had a really good defense, and the Rams annihilated it. You know, and it's like whether they had the defensive signals or not, I just don't understand how much of an advantage that could be. Maybe I don't I think understand it's a football. Well. Advantage. It could it be an advantage an where you rush for forty-eight times for two hundred and eighty yes, yes. yards and with a zone. A zone rushing approach, like the blocking schemes that you have in mind, where you're taking advantage because you know which side of the field you can you can sh- uh, uh, run to because you know what the formation is. Absolutely, it's an enormous advantage. It's a humongous advantage. You should have Lombardi. Lombardi could break it down. I bet. yeah, I, I know it's an advantage. I just don't. I think people have now thrown that Dallas game away as oh Dallas wasn't that good and they had all their signals and it's like well that the Rams were really good in that game and they. The thing I like about them, the more I looked at them, I went back over their season, especially looked at the first 10 weeks, and I'd kind of written them off a little bit mentally. But I do think they have an extra level to go to. And we've seen it a couple times this season. And I just wonder, against a team that's going to have trouble stopping their run, with the speed of the turf, with some of the defensive playmakers they have, with Tlaib's ability to defend Thomas... Whether that's enough to make it a close game, I think it is. So I'm I'm going to take the three and a half. I'm putting a million bucks on it, House. You didn't talk uh, me yeah, out I'm, of it. I'm going on the other side. I just want to be on the record. I'm, I'm that's great. That. People love when we disagree. Yeah, Pats, Chiefs, I, three, I, three. I know point that game. I'm not going to feel dumb backing Sean Payton and Drew Brees in the Superdome, playing for the chance to make it to the Super Bowl. Well, I'm going to feel dumb because. This is part of my rationale for why I'm taking the Pats plus three, other than being a, a homer. Yeah, I love it. The Belichick Brady dynasty. Kyle, are you sitting down for this? Always. Do you have enough Kleenex in there on that side of the thing? You might need to clean up after this. What are you about to say? What are you about to say? (laughs) Pats Rams, 2001, starting the century. Pats Rams, 2019, ending the second decade of the century. Oh, wow. Uh, Pretty good. I like the symmetry. I can't get it out of my head, house. Pats Rams. Whoa, this is weird. Pats, Rams, McVay, Belichick. A lot of people love that McVay Belichick angle. Tom Brady, still doing it after all these years. Yeah, Jared the fact Goff. that <laughs> the Rams, the Pats won the first Super Bowl in New Orleans. And now the Rams beating New Orleans for the Pats to help set up the Pats Rams Super Bowl. Only this time, instead of New Orleans, it's a little bit down in Atlanta. Here's the other thing that we forgot to mention during the Saints Rams game. If the Saints win, they go to Atlanta for the Super Bowl. This would be the worst thing that ever happened to Atlanta football fans if they hadn't lost the Super Bowl where they're up 28 to 3. Other than that. That's rude. I'm just, rude. I'm just being honest. Um, 
They don't want the Saints to come. I feel like they're, the Atlanta fans are going to have so much juju going against New Orleans this weekend. It's almost like the Rams have their fan base. The Patriots, all their fans will be rooting for the Rams and the Chiefs too. And then on top of it, we have the Falcons fans also rooting for the Rams. That's a lot of people rooting. I want to make this little observation. I yeah. think I think Atlanta is now a soccer a soccer uh, oh, come town. On. No, come on. I, I That's mean, just the, me. they get eighty thousand. They get eighty one thousand people crammed in that place. Their soccer team won that that the, the the soccer league this year. People, the the Atlanta fans turn on the Falcons so quickly. All my Falcons friends were so disgusted with this. Wait, wouldn't you be? They had a twenty eight to three lead. It's, it's the biggest it's, it's joke like in the history of football. Fan. That's awful. You're it's so rude of you. Well, what what was a bigger choke than that? There's 17 plays that if they had one made one play, they ago. win. It's terrible. I mean, some people might observe the the undefeated Patriots going up against the lowly Giants. I mean that, you know. Except we if you're looking to rank choke jobs. Yeah, but we kind of got our asses kicked in that game. The Giants were good in that game. <laughs> the Falcons, it was over. All they have to do is just run 40 seconds off the play clock every play and don't fuck up, and it's, the game's over. Um, they got into the time-space continuum. They lost track of time. Pats, Chiefs, look, it's really hard for me to pick against the Pats in a playoff game. I'm certainly not going to do it with Andy Reid and the rookie QB, and I do think the Pats, as football goes along during a season, have kind of stumbled into a new identity here as the power running team. And I said this on Rosillo's podcast, I'm going to say it to you. I think Brady rope-a-doped me and, and a lot of other fans this season in a lot of ways. I don't think he, I think he just wanted to get through the regular season. That makes a lot of sense. I think he did the Golden State Warriors approach of, because watching it week to week, it was like, man, what the hell is going on this year? Why is he short-arming these throws? Why is he so afraid to get hit? So he's just getting just old. protecting himself. And then in the Chargers game, it was like he, he came out of the phone booth. And it was like, oh, there's Tom Brady. So I do wonder if he's just, at this point, they know they're going to win the AFC East and he's just, you know, cares about three games in January and February. And that's that's his focus. And the rest of them, it's nice to win. There's certain games where he really stepped up, like the KC game. But for the most part, uh, you know, that's who he is. And... You know, it's funny. They're not a nobody believes in us team. I don't, I don't even know how to rule this. Are they a nobody believes in us team when they're telling us they're a nobody believes in us team? And it's like, I think everybody does kind of believe in you. You're, you've won the Super Bowl five times. So did Edelman print those t-shirts? He did. He did. That, that, that's, that's it. <laughs> You're done. You're cooked. The, the nobody believes in us. I didn't over. like that. Yeah, we, I didn't like that at all. I just, I feel like at this point with the Belichick-Brady infrastructure, you just have to keep riding it until they, they, until it's over. It's what's a, what's been a better I, bet I, in sports. I agree with that. So will they win? Will they lose? I don't know. But I think this is a coin flip of a game and I like getting the three points. What do you think? There is a bunch of historical precedents that does not favor the Patriots and Tom Brady on the road. I can imagine. The well, the fact that, that they've that we, sucked on the road this year. Well, not just this year, but in the playoffs as well. The thing that um, I th- I think kind of lulls us a little bit, the Patriots don't play a lot of playoff games on the road because they've been so, so dominant over the last 15 years. They've had the good fortune of, you know, winning the division and winning the conference and being uh, at, at home. It's kind of hard to believe that like, I, I think it's the case 
They played five playoff games on the road as an underdog in the Tom Brady era. That's not very many games. But they are only two and three against the spread in the, under those circumstances, and they have won and covered only one time mm. in their past five away playoff games, and that was all the way back more than ten years ago, two thousand six, two thousand seven matchup against the Chargers. Right, and one that was lucky win and cover. I don't like that. That was a lucky win because Brady threw Brady the game was good, in- by the way back then. I know, but Brady threw the game-ending interception, and then Troy Brown stripped the dude. Or it was it could have been the game-ending interception. Troy Brown stripped the guy right. who had the interception. They got the ball back, and they ended up winning. Um, yeah, it's not great. Look, they lost in Denver twice. They uh, they lost the Indy game in 06. I get it. They're better at home. I just feel like at this point, it's Andy Reid. It's Bill Belichick. It's Tom Brady. It's a rookie QB. It's um, probably a cold game, not as cold as we thought it was going to be. Yeah, and uh, it's the matchup I wanted. To be honest, I asked uh, I asked for this matchup a week ago on this podcast. It's a great game, and I don't know who's going to win, so I'm going to take the points, and that's really what it comes down to. I don't. That, I don't. That's fine. I don't. I think anybody who says I know what's going to happen, here's how this is going to play out. I just don't believe them. I think it's going to come down to like some gimmick plays, special teams, uh, a tip pass. These teams are even and they, and you know, the chiefs have a lot of team speed, which is dangerous. The Pats have a really good secondary, which is good for Mahomes. Um, the Pats have a power running game that I think can give the, give the chiefs some trouble, some trouble. They got James White back. They figured out how to use Gronk as like a real asset. Do you see some of the clips of him just blowing people off the line? Um, yeah, it's incredible the matchup scheme, and they're going to shorten the game. They're they're basically going to do a reverse of what the Giants did to them in 07. They're they are uh, they're going to try to keep the ball as long as possible and not let Mahomes get into a rhythm. Mahomes is terrifying. I'm going to throw this caveat to you too, House. You let me know how you feel about it. My dad and my uncle Bob and Michael Don are coming tomorrow. It's Michael Bob's 70th birthday. Diehard Pats fan for 50 years. And, they're uh, coming out to LA? Coming out to LA. We're all watching the game together. I just don't feel like it's a wow. loss. I feel like we're swinging the karma of this game somehow. Nephew that, Kyle's going to be there. Ow! The, 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 the thing I, I wanted to wonder, I wanted to hear what the Pats might have up their sleeve for Tyreek Hill because I just think he's unstoppable and anything that you might do scheme-wise leaves you so vulnerable in other areas because of all the weapons. Like, if you double-team... Tyreek and don't let him, you know, get the touches he's going to get. Doesn't that come at the expense? The price you have to pay is Travis Kelsey going out and catching 14 balls for 180 yards and yeah, two my touchdowns. Gu- my guess is they're going to try to take away both guys and let let the Chiefs try to do three, four, five, six yards a pop at a time. Would like, be let my Damian guess. Damian Williams. That's, yeah, that's, it's that's, like please that's, let let Damian Williams and fucking Conley and let all these other dudes go to town. But we're not. But how do you? St- how do you? You can't take away both guys. I don't. I, I think that's a pretty uh, tall order. Yeah, I agree with you. Anyway, I don't. I don't feel I don't that care. confident that's... about the game. But I. I. I think either team could win. So I'm taking the points. And Here, I... Here's the one thing. T- tell me what's on the menu for the for the Simmons men. This may tip me one way or the other. What's on? The, what are the Simmons men convening for this great birthday celebration? Yeah. 
uh, the Patriots. What what is on the menu uh, for for this uh, game watching? I think I'm gonna have my mom cook. Oh, see, so this is the thing. This this tips it. This now you're convincing me. Yeah. Because uh, what are we calling her now? Your mom, Aunt Jamie? Jamie. What are we calling yeah, her? Yeah, my, my kids Jamie. call her Jamie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cooking the Italian feast. I think that's happening. She's, she's, so she's making the meatballs. She's the making the brujol. Yeah, all that she, stuff. She's doing the peppers. Yeah, we have to hose down she's Kyle when he shows stops. up. Kyle's actively rooting against another, other people not to keep eating because he wants to take more food home. Oh, yeah. I clean up well at these uh, <laughs> The ziti. She'll make a nice thing of the ziti. I love yeah. the ziti. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what we'll right, see what yeah, she has in store for us. It's pretty good, yeah. right? If that really, if if that's what you do, then I have to go for the Patriots because I have to go for that for the jammy Italian feast. My uncle Bob, one of his best friends, college roommate George McGuan, used to run the clock at the old uh, Sullivan Stadium before um, it became Gillette and whatever the hell it is now. And I'm here to tell you firsthand that the whole thing about the scorekeeper kind of twisting a little bit to get the home team an extra second or so when, when we need it uh-huh. is a hundred percent true. Cause our man, George, <laughs> our man, George was a huge bats fan working the clock. So he found a couple seconds here and there. Yeah. He'd find a second here and there in his day. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the chiefs probably have their version of that. Look, it's going to be a tough game. It's going to be a sea of red. It's Mahomes is fantastic. They have two terrifying offensive weapons and a couple good pass rushers, and they looked awesome in that Colts game last week. Awesome. So I don't think it's going to be easy, but I don't know, man. That Pats-Rams thing just keeps hanging over my head. just feels there's a certain symmetry to it. I hope it comes to pass. It's a great story. I think we're going to end up with a great story whatever the matchup is. I I agree. It's it's very rich. It's a very juicy playoffs, and I, you know, Congratulations to the NFL for getting, you know, perfect parody once again. I agree. House, uh, you can tweet House at at House from DC. Help him name the golf podcast for 2019. A pleasure. As always, House. Talk to you soon. Thanks, buddy. All right, we're going to throw it to Aaron Sorkin. Before we do that, the new Microsoft Surface Pro 6 can help you get things done whether you're on the field or running a business. Take Brian Arakpo and Michael Griffin, two former NFL teammates, who have opened a cupcake shop with the Surface Pro. They can do everything they need from setting schedules to creating promotions for social media and designing new flavors. Plus, it's light super fast and has a great battery life. Brian and Mike are proving you can tackle all your passions with the power and speed of the new Surface Pro 6. And since we're here, check out the Ringer social platforms, our YouTube, at Ringer, our Instagram also has Ringer in the title, but we have been doing a bunch of fun stuff. One of the things we did today, actually, we watched the new John Wick trailer. I hadn't seen it. Chris Ryan hadn't seen it. Chase Serrano hadn't seen it. We went into Chris Ryan's office and we videotaped ourselves having basically a movie orgasm of watching <laughs> John Wick 3. I knew nothing that was in it. There's a couple surprises in the trailer that we were shocked by. But uh, you can check that out on our Twitter feed and check out all the great stuff we're doing, including NBA Desktop, Slow News Day, and a whole bunch of other stuff. That is all on the Ringers social platforms. All right, let's get to uh, Aaron Sorkin. Here we go. What an honor. Aaron Sorkin is here. Great to be here. I don't even know how to ID you. I feel like you've been in my life for like 30 plus years now. That's really nice. You've been in my life as well. Oh, I appreciate that. I really enjoyed listening to you. I remember... 
I guess Few Good Men was the first one, but I remember when that was coming out, early 90s. When a movie, a movie poster really mattered back then. It was like Cruz and Nicholson and yeah. Demi Moore are going to be in a movie together. What the hell? It was great. And that was my first movie. And it was, uh, I adapted it for my first play. Uh, uh, I was a kid and lightning struck. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I was so you write a play world. and eventually it turns into a movie with probably the two biggest movie stars we had at the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, what happened was, well, first of all, the, the, the play got done, which was uh, unusual enough. It's such a big cast. Uh, I, I was in my mid-20s. It's hard doing new plays. It's especially hard doing them when you've never heard of the guy uh, who wrote it. But the play got done. And Nicole Kidman, who was Mrs. Tom Cruise at the time, came to see uh, the play, called her husband, said, you really should get here. There's a part you're going to want to play. And it all happened that fast. Did, when you wrote the part of Kathy, did you have like a Cruise-type person in mind? Like, do you think of... Actors when you're writing characters or no? I'm always the first person to play these parts. I'm I oh it's always I'm, you. yeah I'm it's I'm playing every part the men the women um, uh, I'm jumping up around uh, jumping around in my office uh, playing all the parts. So uh, the first time an actor is actually cast, it's a little bit of an adjustment for you me. You feel that jealous? Yeah, uh, uh, that it's uh, that it's not me playing the part. But um, uh, but listen, by the time Tom played the part, three other people had already played the part on Broadway. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously he, he was great in the movie. I loved working with him, working with Jack Nicholson is something I'll never forget the whole cast. We did a rewatchables pocket. We did this podcast called the rewatchables where we break down movies that people have seen a million times uh -huh. and we did a few good men. Nicholson's like barely in that movie. It feels so like he's in it for scenes. two hours. He's yeah. in like four scenes. Right. Um, uh, he shot for two weeks, uh, on the movie. That was it. And, uh, and the, the whole Second week uh, was uh, was just the stuff in the courtroom, uh, his testimony. And I looked over one day and Christian Slater uh, had come. He just wanted, like he had heard that Nicholson was doing this. That's he when was, he was young Nicholson. That's when he was young Nicholson. And I looked over and Christian Slater was mouthing the words uh, uh, along wow. with Nicholson. Yeah. yeah, I remember in the research of that, they were saying like they shot Nicholson scenes. I don't remember if it was first or whatever, but then- they had to shoot the camera angles of everybody else. And he just kept doing the speech over and over again because he loved it. Lots of times, yes. We, you, you've you've got to shoot a ton of coverage in a scene like that. Uh, you know, not just Nicholson's close-up and medium and wide shots, but you need to cover Tom and Demi and uh, uh, you need to cover Kevin Bacon. You need to cover the jurors, the judge, uh, all the people sitting out in the gallery. So uh, there are a couple of dozen of di different camera angles. And with someone like Nicholson, uh, you know, as the hour would get late, ordinarily, uh, you'd say, you know, Jack, you can go home and uh, uh, a second AD can, right. can sit and read it. Uh, and Nicholson just kept doing it over and over and said uh, to the director, Rob Reiner, Rob, I just love to act. It's amazing. It's such like a weirdly inspiring story. Yeah. He could have just, he could have had like somebody's nephew come in and sit in the chair and Nicholson said, nah, I want to do it again. And you know, the, the, I think that the vibe that most people get from Jack Nicholson is that he's, and I don't really give, give a damn, uh, a guy I can phone it in at this point in my life. It's exactly the opposite. He is a yeah. really hard worker. He's a total pro. He wants to be great. Uh, he doesn't phone anything in. I tried not to do a lot of research for this because I like having, Good. I like finding out stuff. The one thing I couldn't remember was how you got started writing. So I did look that up. 
And I had no idea, like you didn't even write really until after college. Like you wanted to be an actor. And I was like, how the fuck did this guy didn't write? Like you weren't writing for your school newspaper and doing all that stuff? You just weren't. To to me, until I got out of college, writing was just a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. I'd just never written for pleasure before. Uh, And then there was this one night I was living in, I was sharing a tiny studio apartment uh, about half the size of the room we're in right now. Uh, and I, everyone I knew was out of town. It was one of those nights in New York where it just feels like everybody has been invited to a party you haven't been invited to. Yeah. I didn't have $3 in my pocket. Uh, and in this apartment was, uh, a semi-automatic typewriter. Uh, it's electric keys and a manual return. And the TV was broken. The stereo was broken. The only thing to do was to put a piece of paper in that typewriter and start typing. And that's the first so time- So you just pure boredom? Pure boredom. The first time I wrote for fun was the first time I wrote dialogue uh, and uh, and loved it. And I just, I stayed up all night writing and I feel like that night has never ended. See, I really worry about creativity going forward just in America because of all the ways we have not to be bored now. Mm-hmm. So you take you in that situation. So what year is that? Like 1980? That was- uh, God, it would have been uh, like 1985, probably. So now 1985, you in 2019, mm-hmm. you're just on like online. You're probably on some message board or like you're on Tinder. Like you're you're not so bored that you're like, I'm going to write some dialogue. You have better options. That's right. Because um, I worry uh, that the boredom, I think, is like the greatest thing you can have sometimes creatively. It's like, ah, fuck. All right. I'll I, write something. I couldn't agree more. And there are too many, uh, you're right about this. There are too many easy boredom killers. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm the parent of a teenager, so I've, I've raised a daughter entirely in the digital world. Um, and, uh, it's, it's changing our kids. Yeah. I don't, in some ways for the better, but I think in ways like this, like Sometimes it's all right to have nothing else to do yeah, and first to of all, try to force yourself to do something, whether it's read a book or exactly. I don't know. First That's of all, like you, two you, old you, guys, you should but. learn that that that. Yeah, I know, it, but but we're right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, you should learn how to deal with boredom. Then there are ways to overcome boredom, which are a lot more productive than uh, checking out a YouTube video. Nobody's bored anymore because there's always something to do that can at least keep you kind of casually engaged. Yeah. Unless you don't have a phone or the internet. Right. And let's assume most people do uh, have a, I have think a they phone do. or the internet. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that's happening is uh, our kids are literally becoming chemically addicted to their phones. If you're a gambling addict, the moment that's giving you the dopamine rush uh, is not when you win. It's when the roulette wheel is spinning. Uh, okay. In that moment, uh, you're about to find out if you won. And the same thing is happening when our kids reach in their pocket to get their phone to see if someone responds to their text, if they have a new like, a new follower, a new friend, uh, uh, that kind of thing. They are getting a chemical rush when they put their hand in their pocket to get their phone. And so they're going to do it uh, all day long. And that's how our kids are, are, are chemically addicted to technology. I only want to keep the two old guys talking about how life used to be for two more minutes. Sure. Um, I worry that everybody's having like roughly the same experiences. And as a writer, that's bad. Like think about your background. 
and you go on, you become one of the greatest screenwriters we have, and you have this completely abnormal background that can't be replicated in mm-hmm. any way. And now it's like a lot of the people that get into writing, they kind of go through the same farm system. Either they go through the, you know, like the comedy writers, they uh-huh. all go to Harvard. Yeah. Um, or the people that moved to LA and they're in screenwriters and they're in improv groups, but there's like these buckets that you have to be in. And the abnormal backgrounds seem to win over and over again. The people that didn't do the same traditional pass. And I, I just hope we keep that. No, there's no question about it. I, I used to actually worry a lot that um, that my childhood had been too normal uh, for, it just wasn't a good recipe for good American writing. It turns out my childhood wasn't as normal as I thought it was. <laughs> Nobody's uh, childhood looking is normal. Back, right. Um, but uh, let's, let's continue being two old guys uh, uh, for a second. Another problem uh, is because uh, I, I think that there are a lot of problems with social media and that they kind of are, are drowning any upside that there might be. But another problem is that that people are curating their their lives now. Yeah, um, uh, they're they're showing you the photographs that they want to show you where they were at the cool party or they're with the the cool people. Uh, they're you know, you're not having conversations. You're just kind of posting something witty. Uh, uh, again, you're, you're, we're curating our lives. Uh, and it's kind the of best sending, possible version of it. Yeah. We're, we're sending our, exactly. We're sending our representative, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to be the kind of, kind of the movie version, uh, of us in, in the real world. In the real world isn't like that. I mean, Tommy, I, Tommy, I yell at all the time. He's on. What do you no, yell at Tommy for? No, no. Tommy's actually good. <laughs> I, we, we like people skills here at the ringer, but I, I do think. There's a pressure with social media to kind of update people with what's going on in your day because that's what life is like now. And I I just wonder how it's going to affect writing going forward. Now, the movie Eighth Grade, which we had Bo Burnham was in here, Mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really smart movie. And that's basically a lot of what that movie is about, about this character that's so awkward socially. And the one thing she has control over are these social media and Instagram pictures and things like that. It was really interesting. It, it is a great tool for people who are awkward, or awkward socially. And in fact, when I wrote The Social Network, a lot of what was behind Mark Zuckerberg's uh, motivation there was he was awkward uh, in the real world and he, he built a tool that he needed. He, uh, he built a world that he was the mayor of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he could be his best self. And so, uh, you know, that's that's a... That's a nice thing. I get that. It, listen, even I, I, I think I would rather email someone than talk to them uh, on the phone. I'm just going to be better at it. You know, I'm just going to be more comfortable. Uh, but it, it's that that's in moderation, and I, I feel like we've gone way past the, the line of moderation. What do you think is better? Let's go positive. What do you think okay. is better in 2019 for a writer than it was in 1985? Um, or 1993, uh, the software final draft. That's about it. There, there's, there's a great piece of uh, of writing software called Final Draft uh, that um, you know where we used to have to use whiteout and staple things and scotch tape them. Uh, uh, now you can you can move words around. I think with ease. I'm 99 percent sure I'm right about this. I think it was, I had somebody on my podcast, and I'm almost positive it was Paul Thomas Anderson, who said he still writes in Word doc. Uh, and then I'm, has somebody translate it because he just never could get used to final draft. You know, I'm not surprised. I used to do that 
too. I uh, I wrote, it wasn't in a Word doc, but it was in a piece of, uh, this was during the West Wing, uh, antiquated software called MacWrite. Uh, and the writer's assistants would always translate it into uh, Final Draft. And they would beg me, just, we'll teach you how to use Please. Final Draft. It's, it's really easy. <laughs> I'll just say, I don't want to, you know, I've got like muscle memory of yeah. where my fingers go. And I don't want to like have to be thinking about the keys uh, when I'm writing. And then they finally lied to me. Um, I got whatever the newest, I've, I've always had Macs. And so whatever the newest Mac, the G4, it's, it's something that had just come out. Um, uh, and so, uh, I got it and they told me, oh, you know what? Your software doesn't work, uh, on this new Mac. So sorry, you gotta, you, you gotta just gotta suck track. it up and do yeah, it. Yeah, they just, they liked me and it, it was, it, it was it, smart. I'm glad that they did. Yeah. I really like Smart move. Now. <laughs> so when Fugit Men took off, what happened to your life? Cause you had American president like a year or two later, right? Had a American sure president a year or two about? later. Uh, he, here's but what, what happened to you, like, because that was like the era of the early 90s, hot screenwriters. Right. Premier magazine writing about the, like, so you're right in the middle of that all of a sudden. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, and, well, here's one of the things uh, that, that happened. Well, first of all, two, two things happened. One was, uh, I, I, I had never thought about being a screenwriter or a, a television writer. Uh, once I started writing I, I was just going to be a playwright. That's that's really all I knew. I watched movies and television shows as much as anybody else, uh, but I wasn't watching them like a, a as if I were a student the way I would uh, watch plays. Uh, but a few good men took me out to L.A. Uh, to do the adaptation, uh, and you know I was going to come right back and do my next play. But I stayed and did another movie, and then another, and then a TV series, and, uh, and that was your life. And that was my life. The other thing that happened was. Uh, when I was I, 25, uh, I tried cocaine for the first time. And I remember thinking, it's a good thing I don't have money because uh, this could be a real problem. <laughs> and, and I got money. Uh, no. uh, and uh, and it became a real problem. Uh, so I lost my 30s, basically, uh, to cocaine addiction. I was a pretty high-functioning addict. I was able to write while I was doing it. Were your uh, 30s, you're, so you're saying like the mid to late nineties that at that time or later? Yeah. I went to rehab in 1995. Okay. And then sports night was after that though. Sports night was four years after that. So it was almost like the, the Hollywood cliche of a guy hits it big and can't handle it for a little bit and then figures it out. It's absolutely that cliche. Yes. Um, and, uh, my recommendation is don't try it. Let's see the easiest way to not become addicted to it. Yeah. So American president, you went back to the president character two different times in uh -huh. your career. What, so you do American president first, which by the way, has aged really well. And it's kind of, it, and I, I think- I, I haven't gone back to look at it in a while. Has it held up? So the other one is Dave. Right. Both, both were president's movies, but you know, there's something about the, that era of the nineties where there was still some sort of innocence to it. Yeah. That there were, was captured in those movies, right? You're right. The president could still be- a great person. Mm -hmm. It's not the Nixon hangover. There's actually, this could be a good job with the right person. Yes. There was also um, some mystery about the White House. It was mm. a palace we'd never been inside before. So both with the American president, Dave, and then later with the West Wing, anytime you saw the president just like being a person, being a father, was like, uh, being a friend, uh, it was kind of cool, you know? Yeah. Oh, like that's how he gets his toothpaste. Um, uh, that's how it works behind the scenes. Listen, the whole first five minutes, the opening five minutes of the West Wing, uh, was based entirely on nobody knowing what the acronym POTUS 
uh, stood for. The audience couldn't know what that stood for. The opening uh, wouldn't work. And no one knew what it stood for then. So you, when these things are done, you don't go back and think about them or try to learn from them or anything? They just kind of happened? I, I, I do try to learn from them uh, in, the, in the moment. Um, it's hard for me to go back and, uh, and look at them. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I do because I'll be asked to, you know, we'll, we'll hit a West Wing anniversary or something and I'll be asked to look at a particular episode, uh, that we'll be talking about. And, uh, listen, there are times that I'm, uh, actually very pleased when I think, gee, you know, that one, that one worked. Yeah. Uh, that was great. But I've never written anything that I didn't wish I could have back and write again. Really, nothing. Nothing. Social Network's really good. I appreciate that. Thanks. That um, was we did a rewatchables on that too, and we probably the best movie of the decade. Ah, uh, that's awfully nice of you because uh, it's it's the most rewatchable. It was the best in the moment. The actors are the best. I think it's taken on a different meaning now with what's happened it, in the last four or five it, years. It has. I think it's uh, the most important movie of the decade. Well, that's that's awfully nice and generous of you to say that. I, I had a. Great time writing it. I had a great time making it. David Fincher, uh, uh, the director, just hit it out of the park. That well, cast. I remember I remember finding, I don't remember when somebody was like, it's Sorkin and Fincher. It's like, oh, oh, they got the big guns for this. This is good. It was a big gun and a half. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Fincher is amazing. That, uh, the first scene in The Social Network, which is Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara, yeah, uh, sitting at a bar, just it's a bad date. It's not going to end well for Jesse. Um, we we shot. He did ninety nine takes uh, of that over two nights. Ninety nine takes of a. It's not a scene that's complicated to shoot. Um, uh, you just you get the two shot and then the over uh, and the over and a couple of sizes. Uh, but he, because of all the language. Uh, uh, what David wanted, and I really appreciated this, was the repetition. He just wanted them doing it over and over and over, just to casualize the language. Uh, he, he didn't want them giving the performance they were giving in the shower before they came to the set. Which is probably a problem with some of the stuff you write, right? You write these it, great meaty dialogue things that people, the actors, it can probably love get doing. Very operatic. Yeah. It, it can it can teeter on uh, melodrama. So he, David, would knock that out right away. 99 takes. We begged him, just do one more. Uh, uh, so the story will be a hundred. And he said, no, 99 is almost better. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Was that the first scene you wrote of the movie? Yeah. Uh, I've so never started written anything there. out of order. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can't, I've, it's an OCD thing. I have to go. In order. Well, I remember one of the things with you is you never like to plan too far ahead. Right. Which is the same way. That's how I've always written my columns. I sometimes mm-hmm. I, not that I write that much anymore, but I would always, I'd have a basic idea in my head, but not really know it was going to happen until your fingers start moving. So that's what you do. It's kind of, yeah. And with, with, uh, with series television, um, other showrunners, you know, they've broken, they and the writing staff, they've broken the whole season uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, they know what the whole season arc is going to be. So they know where you've got to be by Christmas. And so this is where we have to be by Thanksgiving. And this is where we have to be by Columbus Day. Um, and I've never been able to, uh, uh, do that. I I would write an episode only every once in a while, knowing what was going to happen, a little of what was going to happen in, in the next episode. Uh, but most of the time uh, I'd, I'd finish an episode. I'd feel great for three minutes, uh, cause I got a script (laughs) finished and then television, all it means is you haven't started the next one yet. 
that it's just gnawing at you. Yeah. It's hanging over your head. Um, well, back then, by the way, I mean, this current era would have been so much better for the West Wing for you. You would have had, we, you would have do 13 episode seasons instead of, well, we, how many were you doing yeah, per we year? We would do 22. 22 but, is insane. Yeah, but I Love Lucy would look at 22 and say, you guys uh, are wimps. We did 36. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 22, like really dense one hour shows is like. I know. Uh, that's my, why you lasted four years. You can, uh, there's no way you can do that anymore. That it's it's tough. I I I admire anyone who does any television show. Uh, and there was actually uh, the sports night was two years, and the second year of sports night was the first year of the West Wing. So I was writing a sports night and a West Wing uh, every week. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, I'm I glad would, you went backwards because I want to get to social network. I want to go a little chronologically. Sure, sports night. Sports so you do American President. American President's a hit, right? American President's a hit. Um, you got to work with Michael Douglas at the tail end of the Michael Douglas apex. Like uh, a legendary eight-year run for him. Uh, sure. I think, uh, uh, listen, um, uh, he won a Golden Globe last night. I think we're, I, I think, I don't think the Michael Douglas apex has ended. Um, but uh, I got <laughs> to work with- 30-year apex. <laughs> he's, he's a uh, he's a great actor. He's a great producer. And I, and I love him. He's, he's To me, it's like if he was an athlete, he would be the most- He's like the Hakeem Olajuwon. That's exactly right. Of of actors. He's yeah. like, go look at his IMDb. It's like home run, home run, yeah. triple, home run, home run for like nine years. Yes. Um, and don't forget, he produced One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, and uh, China Syndrome. And, uh -huh, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, I got to work with uh, with Michael and with Annette Bening uh, <clears throat> and uh, Michael J. Fox too. Uh, oh yeah, he's really good in that movie. He's true. I also think there's a great conversation that I've actually had with people about if you could have a movie president to be the actual president, who would you pick? Douglas is in like the semifinals. I don't um, know if he wins. I'm really Ke glad to hear that. Kevin Klein, Douglas, um, Martin Sheen's obviously in there. Well, uh, it, I also am partial to Jeff Bridges in The Contender. I love, He's I love really The good Contender. And I love Jeff, Jeff Bridges in The Contender. Um, I, I love the character. I love his performance. I love that whole movie. That was uh, kind it, of on your corner a little bit. Another president thing. Uh, they should have gotten your permission. Yes. No, 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 no. He, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I was working my side of the street a little bit, but, but did, did really well. At least uh, give you a heads up. Street. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I'd done the American president uh, and I needed a new idea for a movie. And uh, while I was writing the American, I was living uh, in a hotel. Yeah. Uh, and going to bed very late at night, uh, more like very early in the morning and I'd turn on ESPN and there would be the loop of last night's sports center. Oh yeah. Like Kilborn and those guys. Kilborn, um, uh, Oberman, uh, uh, Stu that, Scott. Sure. Um, Linda Cohn. She's still there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, I just thought it was a really good TV show. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the This Is Sports Center ads uh, were getting to me too. It, uh, it really felt like, boy, that would be like a, a, a great place to work. That'd be a great place to, to meet your best friend, to meet your girlfriend. It just seems like a really fun place to work. Uh, and so in thinking about what my next movie uh, might be, I was thinking about a sort of broadcast news, but at, 
ESPN uh, type show. I was interested to see if that played a factor in it, bro, because that's like eight years earlier, probably. Yeah, it's- uh, And the uh, one of the all-timers. Uh, exactly. And for me, the first time I kind of noticed that, uh, um, that a movie can be driven by good writing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I should have noticed it decades before. Uh, Jim Brooks wasn't the first person to write a good movie. Um, uh, but it was just the first time I thought- yeah, I would have loved to have been the guy who uh, who wrote this. So broadcast news was a big deal for me. I'm so now I'm thinking about broadcast news, but uh, at ESPN, and uh, I said to my agent, "But all the ideas I'm having are are really short stories. They're they're not a long arc." And I said, "Well, you're describing uh, a television series." Yeah, we have this thing called a television. <laughs> right, they show shorter shows. Um, uh, why don't I set up a meeting with you and uh, the folks at ABC? Uh, so I said, "Sure." And again, they're used to somebody coming in and being able to describe all the characters and they have an outline of the first eight episodes and that kind of thing. I wasn't able to do any of that. All I was able to do is tell them exactly what I told you. I want to do a show set behind the scenes at an ESPN type place. I don't know anything else about it. You're just going to have to let me go off and write it. Uh, and they did. Uh, and, and then I, you went and spent time with... Like, did you went, go to I, Bristol? Yeah, I hung, out, um, uh, I hung out in Bristol and that was great. Uh, they were very welcoming. Uh, it was a fun place to have, just to hang, to watch them uh, put a show together. It's still kind of magic to me uh, how the how the clips get edited and how the copy gets written in time for uh, for that broadcast. Well, and also pre-internet, it was beginning of the internet, but right? It was that show had so much more weight because you come home at two in the morning from a bar, and it was like. Did the Celtics win? That's right. <laughs> Did right. anything happen? Wait, there was a trade, and you would just find out all these things on Sports it's, Center. You know what? It, it's. I think it still has a lot of weight, and it's still for me. It works as comfort food. Uh, it's still, uh, and I you think know, they realize that now because mm -hmm. they kept trying to mix it and change it. And now it's just like, eh, let's show highlights. You guess what people like? Right, highlights of things. Right. Let's take a quick break to talk about Simply Safe. Here is a timely stat for you. Almost half of us make a New Year's resolution every single year, whether it's to get healthier, save money, get organized. We start out with great intentions, but a month later, we slip a little, then a little more. It happens to the best of us. Well, one resolution is worth sticking to this year. Keep your home and family safe. Simply Safe, making it easier than ever. 24 7 home security, no contracts or catches. They believe the safest place on earth should be your own home. You feel protected every time you shut your door to leave for work. Or shut your eyes at night. What's better than feeling protected? More than 3 million people feel this way with Simply Safe every day. They're not the only ones. PC Mag named Simply Safe both Editor's Choice and Reader's Choice for 2018. 2019 feels like a good year to ask yourself, is my home as safe as it could be? And if you think, hey, well, Kyle, is your, is your home as safe as it should Definitely be? Definitely not. Definitely well, not. Well, maybe this is the year to fix that. Go to simplysafe.com slash BS to get started. That is Simply Safe with two eyes. Simplysafe.com slash BS. So all that was great, but I still didn't have uh, an idea. You know, something's got to happen uh, in an episode of television. Something has to happen uh, in the pilot. And I had no ideas until my best friend was going through a divorce. And uh, he had, his son was eight years old at the time. And he came to me really sad uh, one day because the night before uh, I think Charles Barkley had thrown somebody through the glass window of yeah, a, bar. a bar. Am I yep. getting this right? Uh, and my friend said, you know, 
Jake, his son, Jake and I were, were really starting to bond uh, over sports. And now with my not being around so much, who are his male role models uh, are gonna be? You know, who's gonna be there to say, hey, Jake, you shouldn't throw somebody through uh, a plate glass window. And so I had my idea for uh, the first episode of Sports Night, take the Peter Krause character, have him going through a divorce, have this kind of news uh, uh, come over. Um, and he's sort of at the end of his rope in, in the pilot episode. You know, he calls himself a, a, a PR guy for punks and thugs. Um, uh, and then bring in the redemptive value of sports from, from left field. Somebody just does something uh, extraordinary. You know, the thing that makes us watch a 10,000 meter uh, a race, something we wouldn't normally watch. But if you, right. if you tell us, if you, Bill Simmons tells us a story uh, about it before we watch it, we're, we're going to watch it like it's the seventh game of the World Series. What was ESPN's reaction to that show? Uh, I think ESPN uh, uh, liked the show. It seemed I like they were okay with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, th there were ESPN people who reached out to me and, uh, and said they liked it. Oberman uh, was a fan, Stuart Scott. Uh, Linda Cohen, I mentioned, was not a fan. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, and I'm not sure why, but corporately, I assume that they were- Did you get some John Walsh time when you were researching that show? Yeah. Yeah. He was my mentor out. at ESPN. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That was, I mean, interesting guy. Yeah. He um, actually would have been a good character for the show because he, he could barely see, but he was the most important TV person they had for 12 have, years. He would have been. And I imagine that one day there will be- Some a, sort of A something. movie about- yeah. You know, because it all started with two guys who wanted to broadcast Connecticut women's right. softball, right? They've talked about, I mean, my friend Jim Miller did the oral history of it. And I think they optioned in a movie, but to try to do like the first five years of it, basically. Yeah. Of how crazy it was. The, the other thing that happened with that show, they, they stuck a laugh track on it. For Sports like night. two thirds of the year. That was like your first, where yeah. you really flipped out on- a network <laughs> or a company, right? It's true. I'm not sure if I flipped out, but here's what happened. Um, I remember I remember rooting for you because I was always on the side of the artist. I appreciate I'm that. I'm like, I love that this guy's going at them about this laugh track thing. It, listen, if this had happened today, of course there'd be no laugh track uh, on no, the that show. No, that's like the prototypical um, single camera show. Yes. Uh, but ABC was concerned about Sports Night because it didn't, really look or feel or sound like uh, a sitcom, uh, a, like a half hour show. And, you know, I mentioned Sports Center is comfort food. Sitcoms are supposed to act that way too. Television has a, a different relationship with its audience than movies or, or, or plays do. It's a much more intimate relationship that it has. It comes into your home. Often you watch it when you're alone, uh, when you're cooking dinner, when you're going to bed. Uh, and a, a big reason why you watch Seinfeld or Friends uh, is because you just want to hang out with those people. Uh, uh, yeah. The same way I wanted to hang out with Oberman and Dan uh, Patrick and, uh, and those guys. Um, and so you want that familiar feel, that three joke a page feel, the sound of that laugh track. And, uh, and those laughs are like were recorded for the Danny Thomas show. Right. Oh, those are dead people laughing uh, <laughs> jokes. Um, and so ABC wanted to do what they could uh, to make this kind of unfamiliar animal more familiar. 
And uh, so they, they wanted to use the laugh track. And uh, I, we, um, it, it was a big battle. Uh, it was chronicled in a long story in, uh, in the New Yorker. Uh, oh, I don't remember that. Yeah, uh, uh, gotta uh, go back and read that. Uh, it, it's a it, it's a cool story, and it's looking back, it's funny the way I folded. Uh, but um, uh, they, they had also they they wanted us to shoot it in front of a studio audience. Once you shoot the front, show in front of a studio audience, you have to use a laugh track. You don't have a choice anymore because you're going to be using different takes from different yeah. shots, and the the laughs are going to be uneven. So you've got to. Uh, uh, juice them and, and smooth it out. I didn't want to use a, a, a live audience because, again, this wasn't, uh, you know, a show like whether it's All in the Family yeah, or Everybody Cheers. Loves Raymond or Cheers, it's it's a proscenium set. You're basically watching uh, a one-act play uh, and the audience can sit there as if they were watching The Tonight Show. Our, our set, most of it, the audience couldn't see. It was deep. Uh, and you wanted the camera to go way in there. You didn't want it to stay uh, at the at the edge of the proscenium. So I didn't want the studio audience. I didn't want the laugh track. Uh, a lot of the laughs weren't bam, bam uh, uh, laughs. They'd be inside of lines. They'd be something you'd smile about, something you'd think about, uh, that kind of thing. And so uh, I, I would, when we went into the, the, the mixing studio to put the laugh track in, uh, I would laugh it as little as possible until by the last episode of the first season. In the second season, they finally said, uncle, they said you can get rid of There's the laugh just track. a smattering of laughter by the last episode. By the last episode, it sounds like three guys on the crew <laughs> couldn't quite help themselves. They just, they had to uh, laugh at that joke and then it's gone. And then in the second season, we're clean. You know what you said about how TV, the familiarity of a TV show is one of the reasons it works. I was just thinking about this because The Sopranos was on on Friday night. They're doing some yeah, kind of marathon. marathon. I can't get away from my TV now. Yeah, it was, so my wife turned TV on and she was kind of half watching and it was like the ninth episode. I'm like, Sopranos, what season is that? She's like, I don't know, it's just on. And we watched five straight episodes. I know. And she she said something that I thought was really interesting. My wife occasionally will have some real insight. She was just like, I miss these people. They were my friends. Yeah. And I was like, you're right. I miss them too. Like Polly Walnuts was my friend. And then he's gone. That's how you watch TV. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and that, that that's a good thing. You just need to be mindful of it, uh, you know, when you're making a TV show. Well, people felt that way with The West Wing, right? I mean, that was- Yeah. But that show, so you you had two opposite experiences. You had Sports Night, which was the- Critically acclaimed. Oh, what a tragedy. It didn't last longer. Mm-hmm. Oh. And then West Wing, which just becomes one right. of the biggest shows in the world. Now, let me just say about the sports night and and any tragic element, it never uh, felt tragic to me. Uh, I I understand that uh, uh, that in network in broadcast television and in the world of we're doing this to make money, uh, that it didn't get enough people and we didn't make enough episodes. I meant more uh, that you didn't get to do six years of it. Right. I felt like uh, doing 45 episodes of it for an audience. And by the way, a a, a small audience back then, not enough to stay Which would uh, never be the biggest show on TV. Exactly. <laughs> like We'd be the highest rated people. show on ABC right now. <laughs> um, uh, but for a guy who, you know, cut his teeth and- a, a church basement in Soho where if you got 99 people in there, that meant you were sold out. You know, doing 45 episodes for 7 million people every uh, Tuesday night felt incredibly 
fulfilling. And getting to write exactly what you wanted to write, characters that you cared about. Yeah. So that's that's fun. But then you also have West Wing, which becomes a monster. Right. Uh, West Wing happened very much by accident. Um, I was, uh, again, I hadn't thought of uh, doing television. This was roughly happening at the same time that my agent was saying, gee, you should uh, meet the ABC people. Uh, He said, uh, I want you to have lunch with John Wells. John Wells uh, is a producer. At the time he had ER, he had China Beach. He was uh, known as a very successful producer of high-end China uh, Beach, underrated. I thought it was, uh, didn't it win a bunch of Emmys? I mean, yeah, but just like historically, it's just kind of gone. Uh, I, 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 thought, I, I feel like that show was really good. Yeah, and it it uh, it's absolutely should be included in, in what was streaming. the renaissance. It isn't? No, can't stream it. That should be, that should be that's, corrected. It's got to be fixed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely should be fixed. Uh, so I thought, yes, I'll have lunch with John Wells. I'm, I, I have no plans to do a, a, a television show, um, but I'm, I'm happy to have lunch with him if he wants to. And the night before that lunch, um, some friends of mine were over to my house at dinner. And uh, I told one of them that I was going to be having lunch with John Wells the next day. He said, oh, you're going to do television. Great. And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm just having lunch. It's, I'm not going to be doing TV. Yeah. And he saw the American president poster on my wall. And he said, you know what? Make a good series. That. But, you know, forget about the widowed president and, and the romance with the lobbyists. Just like stories about the, the president's senior staff. I said, I, really, I'm not going to be doing a television series. And I went into the lunch the next day, immediately saw this wasn't a hey, how are you? Uh, it's nice to meet you, lunch. Because John was there with these executives from Warner Brothers Television and all these CAA agents. And I sat down they and John said- a suitcase of cash. John said, I don't know if it was a suitcase, <laughs> but uh, uh, John said, so what do you want to do? And instead of saying, I think there's been a misunderstanding. I, I didn't come here to pitch anything. Uh, I just uh, wanted to meet you. I'm a fan. I said, I want to do a show about senior staffers at the White House. I just, the only thing I could remember from the dinner the night before. And John reached his hand across the table and said, we have a deal. And I thought, oh my God, uh, what did I just do? What just happened? Yeah. Wait, so who's the friend who pointed out the poster? Uh, uh, Kiva Goldsman, who hadn't yet won the Academy Award for writing A Beautiful Mind. Um, This is amazing. I did not know the story. Yep. So now he gets to brag that he talked you into doing the West Wing, which yes. won a hundred Emmys. Um, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure I owe him money. Um, <laughs> At least dinner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I wrote the West Wing and Sports Night pilots at the same time uh, or back to back. I wrote yeah. Sports Night and then West Wing. And fortunately, uh, NBC... That particular administration at NBC wasn't interested in the West Wing. Shows about Washington had never worked. Politics had never worked. Uh, uh, this, this, this was a TV show where people use words like Democrat and Republican, uh, which, yeah, they again, going along with the these people need to be your friends school of, uh, of selling a TV show. If you look back at TV shows from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s. Nobody lives anywhere. Everybody lives in Springfield, right? That's where The Simpsons got it from. The father is a businessman. Uh, That's all we know about him. They don't have a religion. Or an architect in Mr. Brady's case, yeah. 
businessman, architect, sometimes they're in advertising. <laughs> Ad sales. Um, uh, they do not have a religion. They are white. Um, I, nothing that could possibly alienate the audience. In fact, they would never take a crack at the secretary. Like uh, none of that no, stuff. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. They're no, just no. straight edge heroes. And by the way, even if you look at Seinfeld, um, it's supposed to be the Jerry Seinfeld we know, the Jerry Seinfeld who does the Tonight Show and plays club dates. Yeah. But he's still living in a $1,500 a month apartment. Um, uh, he still has those kinds of problems. His problems aren't, I only have an 80 car garage for my car collection. Right. What do I do with these two new ones? Uh, so um, anyway, the West Wing did have things in it that could possibly alienate an audience. And, uh, and NBC uh, put it in a drawer, which was fine with me because suddenly I was the executive producer and showrunner of a TV show, Sports Night. Yeah, you couldn't I, have done two shows. That's new. Um, even though a year later, that's exactly what would happen. They, Don Allmeyer, uh, who I'm sure you know. Don Allmeyer, um, legend. Yeah, left NBC um, and was replaced by a man named Scott Sassa, uh, who would then be replaced by Jeff Zucker. Um, Scott Sassa took the West Wing uh, out of a drawer, said, we're doing this uh, now. Um, also, a really nice time to be on NBC. They're they're in the middle of time. like a five six year run of uh, they're kind of the they're doing better than anybody, and now they're it, plugging the shit out of this show's coming. It's yours. That's right. Uh, it, it was actually the perfect moment to to be on for it, it was you know it was the Tiffany Network. Um, uh, it was the it was the classy place to be. They had all these hits, and a year into the West Wing they would lose the NFL and they would lose Seinfeld. Um, so Jesus. suddenly we were, uh, they, they badly, they needed to love us uh, a lot. And ER, uh, Clooney is gone. Uh, Clooney is gone. They and had he, friends though. Friends was a monster. They still had friends. We were on the soundstage. West Wing was on the soundstage right next to Friends. Really? Um, Which, yeah. Where was that? On the Warner Brothers lot. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, we were on stage 17 and they were on stage 23, which you'll just have to trust me. They're right next to each other. Um, but uh, we were, you know, we, we, everybody on that show worked from before sunrise to, to midnight. Uh, and friends, they were in their seventh, eighth, ninth season, something like that. Monday mornings, we'd see six very expensive cars uh, uh, parked in their spaces. <laughs> Those cars would not be back until Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> um, their stand-ins were uh, were learning the block, and they just knew how to do the show so well that they could come to the table read and then come to Thursday's camera blocking rehearsal and do the show that night uh, for an audience. How much how much luck do you need? With something like West Wing, obviously you had a great idea. You had, you know, one of the best writers writing it, Martin Sheen. You caught him at the right time. But like, how many ways can something like that go wrong? From when it's happening to when it's actually when I'm watching on television. What are the biggest obstacles? You know, there's a great line that Lawrence Kasdan uh, wrote in the movie Body Heat. Uh, it's a Classic. thriller. Yeah, uh, right. Bill Hurd has this scene with uh, Mickey Rourke. Uh, who is Mickey Rourke is a career criminal. Um, and Bill Hurt needs the boathouse burned down. Um, I, I won't give away too much. And he needs basically to learn from Mickey Rourke how to commit arson. Yeah. Um, and Mickey Rourke is saying, hey, listen, you've done favors for me. Why don't you just let me do this for you? And Bill is, no, 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 I don't want anybody. I'll, I'll do it. Just teach me how to do it. And Mickey Rourke says, listen, 
any serious crime, there are about 50 things that can go wrong. And if you can think of 25 of them, you're a genius. Um, and I feel that way about doing a television show or a movie or a play. Uh, it, except there are 50 things that can go wrong. And if you can think of 25 of them, you're a genius. There are another 100 things that have to go right. right. And if you can think of half of them, you're a genius. Uh, and with The West Wing, um, what went so very right on The West Wing was the casting. I was going to say, you almost like threw a perfect game with the casting. Yeah. Usually there's uh, like the one stinker in there, like, oh man, and then they'll write that person out within two years. No, you know. That, um, the level J of actors is Allison really crazy. Allison Richard Schiff, Brad Whitford, uh, Dulé Hill, Rob Lowe, John Spencer, who, who passed away a few years ago, and Martin, and... Um, uh, Janelle Maloney and, uh, and, uh, and the whole guest cast, uh, we were really lucky there. There's also a common denominator with the West Wing and Sports Night, and that's Tommy Shlami, yep. um, uh, who was uh, the, the other executive producer, the principal director of both, directed the pilots, uh, directed, if you have a favorite episode, chances are he directed it. I, uh, I saw him a month ago. Oh, yeah? And I told him, like, just fucking do the West Wing again. Just cash like the biggest check <laughs> of the decade. This is the greatest time ever to do this show. We, if, you could obviously change the president. To if maybe either reflect he or I things. had a had a good idea uh, uh, of how to do it, even just you know nine episodes or something, we would do it. Hold on, Netflix is on the phone. <laughs> Wait, how much are you offering? Seven hundred million dollars? Okay. We are both. We Helicopter are Helicopter to and uh, from the set. What? All of us involved with the West Wing are are very protective of the memory of the show. We we want people to keep talking about it the way you're talking about it now, and uh, and not say, boy, like, if they had just not done that. Uh, you that know, is that true. You didn't have reboot. that. It would be an interesting reboot. By the way, it's been twenty years. Nineteen ninety nine, right? Yeah. I can't when believe was it? it. September. Yeah, so uh, that's uh, crazy. President Sheen came into our lives. Holy cow! It will be twenty years because that was the two big things September. that year were the Sopranos and West Wing. Sopranos both of were which on a year TV before us. Yeah, um, and uh, no, it, it was Sopranos was ninety nine because that's why they're doing the marathons. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. But it was the beginning of ninety nine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They started in the and both of those shows. Complete your show changed network TV. And that show, I feel like cable was never the same after The Sopranos. That's right. Um, uh, and certainly it, uh, it it played a big part in making a company called HBO. What, um, show, what show, just out of curiosity, are you the most jealous of? You're like, fuck, I wish I'd written that. Um, God. The, uh, all right. You have well, to answer this. You can't get out no, of it. I'm not going to try to get out of it. Um, all right. Uh, but I'm going to name a few shows, not just one. Okay. Wait, you're going to hurt somebody's feelings? <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be one that you're the most jealous of. Okay. I don't know if I'd call it jealousy. Yeah. But I will tell you that The Office um, is uh, a work of genius uh, on so many levels. It's really hard to be hip and have heart at the same time. Yeah. Really hard. Um, and uh, also the show... It wasn't just the uh, the five or six principal characters. I had a cast of 20 people uh, uh, that you cared about. Yeah. Uh, at the center was a tour de force performance from Steve Carell, yeah. right? Uh, and uh, the writing 
simply doesn't get better than that. So I'm going to say The Office, but I'm also going to say Mad Men. Uh, I, I, I think was was great. Uh, you know it. I. Well, I'll Those say that. There, there, there are other shows that I love too, but uh, uh, but The Office uh, and Mad Men. Right now, the the shows that are on right now um, uh, that I'm. Uh, I'll use your language. I'm jealous of it, but mostly I just love watching them. Silicon Valley uh, is fantastic. Barry, okay, Barry, Barry is awesome. I Everybody knew Bill Hader was phenomenally talented, right? Yeah, you did not know that he had that club in his bag. Uh, uh, that he could. Uh, it, I mean, it's funny he's doing a comedy, but that he could play. A, I mean, it's a serious dramatic role uh, that he's playing. He's playing a guy with PTSD. Um, I, I got to know him 10 years ago. He was on my podcast and then he'd come on a couple of times and we had some, a couple of dinners together and it was, he was always, I gotta say, I wasn't totally surprised by Barry. Cause like he's, he was like a huge Klaus Kinski fan. He had this whole weird, super nerdy dramatic side to him, but I was surprised that the show was as good. Uh, me too. Like the odds I, of that happening, where it actually the show's also phenomenal. Is, I'm not. Is, I'm not surprised that that Bill is a is a good actor. I, I people who are uh, f- funny in, in such a smart way, whether it's Bill or or Jonah Hill mm. um, uh, or or Seth Rogen or Sasha Baron Cohen. Or Melissa McCarthy, uh, if you see the movie she's out in now. That um, movie was good. I like that movie. Uh, why am I spacing on it's the like name? It's like I'm. Uh, it's an apology. How can, can I, I ever? How can you ever forgive me? Yeah, yeah. Um, can you ever forgive me? Can Is you ever that, forgive yeah. me? That's what's called. Uh, that was good. People who are that funny in such a smart way, it's because they're really good actors. Um, uh, they're not doing something different uh, uh, when, when they're doing these roles. That's why you they're, tried to tap in with Matthew Perry. Yes. Yeah, and he Matthew Perry is is one of them. Just a really good actor. Yeah, uh, and so I, I knew that Bill Hader was going to be uh, a, a really good actor. I just didn't know that he would he could go there and so successfully. Yeah. So so uh, West Wing becomes a phenomenon, and it wasn't sustainable. How do you only last four years? Um, well, the, the show lasted seven. I only no, lasted I know. That's, four years. How did you only last four? Well, it, it uh, first of all, before I get to that, let me let me say, I, I think that for four years, I had the best job in show business. Uh, I, I loved that group of people. I got to write exactly the show uh, I wanted to write. Uh, I was, I, I always try and be in, in any project that I do, I always try to be the least talented person involved. And I, I was pretty successful with the West Wing, uh, in doing that. Uh, but, um, there, there comes a point, you know, I, I wrote 88 episodes of the show Gosh. and you start to wonder, is, is this fair? Is, is my 80, one of these is going to be my 89th best episode, right? Um, won't someone else's best episode be better than my 89th best? Uh, and don't I owe it to the cast and crew, to Warner Brothers and to NBC uh, to have the show? Maybe, maybe I've I've used all the words I know in every order uh, uh, that I know how to use them. Um, and it just felt like the right time to, to, I just want to overstay my welcome. So in the 2019 parameters, mm-hmm. 
what does a West Wing look like? Like it, the idea you had 20 years ago, mm -hmm. if you're doing it now, would you want to do like 12 episode? Uh, is it on cable? Is it on network? What is like the dream place for it? Uh, uh, listen, I, I, I suppose cable would be better because of the freedom that it gives you in terms of, you know, there were a couple of times, uh, just in terms of language, uh, there are a couple of times when I wished Bartlett because the president, uh, because I do think that the that the best moments on the show are when you see that this isn't a king, it, it's a man. This is a guy with a temp job um, right. uh, who can get as frustrated as anybody else. Uh, when I wanted him to say, "God damn it," uh, uh, yeah. you know, which you can't say uh, on network TV. So, and the shorter schedule would have been nice, but by and large. Because I've been asked in the era of Trump, if you were doing the West Wing now, what would you do different? And the answer is nothing. Uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing because uh, what here's what the West Wing was about. Uh, by and large, uh, in popular culture, our leaders, our elected officials, they're portrayed either as Machiavellian or as dolts. Um, and this was going to be a show uh, where they were highly competent people. Uh, who you may disagree with uh, uh, their position on this particular issue, but there's no doubting that they woke up this morning uh, with our best interest uh, in heart, that public service is a calling for them, and that they are hyper-competent. They may slip on banana peels uh, once in a while, but it's always going to be while reaching uh, for the stars. Uh, uh, there was no cynicism uh, in the show at all. And I think that Right now, to see a group of very competent people who feel that way would be, uh, you know, like a cold drink of water. You had to get to 22 episodes every year, even back then. What was yes. the right number? Um, you think it would have been like 15, 16? Did you always feel like you had 22 uh, episodes of content that you wanted to get out? No, never. Um, uh, which is why. That's why now is better, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, in terms of the number of episodes, you have to do without a doubt. Because uh, now you get to do exactly the right, like I look at something like Breaking Bad, mm -hmm. which actually got better in the last couple of years. And it was like, that dude said everything he wanted to say and nothing was padded. That's right. You didn't have to worry about some number he had to get to. Yeah. Uh, you also have more time to work on each episode, whether, yeah. you know, Breaking Bad, the Sopranos, uh, uh, those shows, uh, you can- you can write an entire season, then shoot that season, and then do post uh, for that whole season, making adjustments uh, along the way as you learn stuff. Uh, and uh, and that's nice, as opposed to the, the way we would make a television show on NBC, which is uh, uh, like literally the moment it comes out of the printer, it's being run over to the stage. We shot yeah. my first drafts. There wasn't a time for a second draft. Yeah. Um, uh, shoot it. You got about... Uh, 12 days uh, in post and that goes on the air. What was your favorite moment of the West Wing? Your single favorite where you're just like doing the Fred Flintstone punch on the bicep. You're just so fired up how it turned out. Boy. Because um, that show, I think the legacy of that show for me other than the cast was just the show had a lot of moments that were kind of indelible. It was right around the time and I think The Sopranos was like this too. Mm -hmm. It was right around the time people were starting to figure out it just the show itself can't just be great, but you also have to kind of leave you with the with the one it, awesome it, three minute stretch of something. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, uh, the three minute stretches of something that I'll remember uh, 
Um, we did uh, our, our second season finale. Uh, it was called Two Cathedrals. Uh, and there was a scene, there's a scene where it's shot in the National Cathedral where Martin Sheen is cursing out God. Um, uh, and then at the end of that episode, set to the Dire Straits song, Brothers in Arms. So it was good. That's why I brought it up. Uh, the Brothers in Arms was like- Yeah, that one. Um, I mean, that was like off the charts. Uh that got written actually in a fairly typical way for me, which is I'm completely stuck. I tell my assistant, I'm just going to be driving around in my car uh, uh, for a while. I drive around in my car. I listen to the music I listened to when I was in high school because that's still what I like to listen to. <laughs> and uh, Brothers in Arms uh, uh, came on. I thought, you know, this would be a great piece of music to set a scene to. And then the whole thing started uh, uh, coming to me and I just reverse engineered it. I worked backwards uh, from there and it all worked out. Smart idea. One of the five best possible. I thought Miami Vice was another show that used to do this. It almost like they would take the song and try to figure out well, but yeah, what Miami kind of Vi scene to put to it. Michael Mann was really good at putting uh, like mini music videos uh, in the middle of Miami I was Vice. Some weird channel was showing season one and I was watching the other day and they used uh, a U2 song from the album before the Joshua Tree that I hadn't heard in forever. I think it's it's called October something. And they play the whole song as they're like, it's the Dennis Farina episode. Uh-huh, yeah. And I was just like, wow, this was like 1984. And they knew they knew at the time I had to use music like that. And most people really didn't figure it Miami out until 15 Vice years later. Broke a lot of ground. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Now you're now you're now we're talking about language. This is yeah, one of okay. my favorite shows. Um, um it, it just the way it was lit. Uh, uh, the way it was shot. I mean, that, that was okay. Michael. It's a groundbreaker. Yeah. So, so I want to talk about studio 60 quick. Okay. So I thought the pilot was one of my favorite pilots of all time. And, and then what happened? Is that what you No. <laughs> you caught Perry, who I always thought was, I don't know, one of the most talented act mm -hmm. comedy slash has that drama side. You just caught him at the right point of his career. Like it was like he's not just a friends guy; he can do this too, and he's like phenomenal in that pilot. Yeah, he's, he's phenomenal uh, doing anything. It was like uh, a career year for him. It was almost like an how an athlete will have like that MVP season. Yes, he was like at just peak of his powers. We had um, uh, he he did uh, a guest thing on on the West Wing, um, uh, where he I mean he did two episodes at the end of my last year there. And then I think he came back and did uh, a couple more uh, after I'd gone. And I mean, there's another guy. We, we mentioned him before uh, in, in the, the group of actors who Bradley are Whitford. known for being funny. Um, uh, but uh, you shouldn't be surprised that they are, are other things as well. Yeah. Because what they are, are, I mean, what Matthew is, what Matt Perry is, is just a really good actor. Um, and, uh, I don't think that he has yes, yet done the best thing he's going to do. So what would you do differently about that show? Looking back, it's been 12 years, 12, 11 uh, years. Later. I would write it better. Um, I, I would just be, you know, there, here's the thing about television. Um, uh, that, that is better if you're writing a movie or a play. If, if I'm writing a screenplay. Uh, and it's it's not going well. I've I've just run into a snowbank. Um, uh, I can call the producer or the studio, whoever is waiting for it, and say, "Listen, um, I've run into some trouble. I know I said I was going to deliver in June. It'll probably be more like August uh, that you'll get the first draft." In television, you've got hard deadlines, the air dates, uh, and you have to meet them. So you have to write even when you're not writing well. Yeah, and that's a tough pill to swallow. And then you have to point a camera at it, and then you have to broadcast it. 
uh, and with Studio 60 and then later with the newsroom, um, uh, I just always felt like I had a pebble uh, uh, in my shoe, that I couldn't get it quite right, that I would write some good scenes, uh, but I couldn't put together uh, a, an, an entire good episode. The way, you know, a, a basketball team, well, they can't put together four good quarters, right. you know. Well, it goes back uh, to the whole thing where you really need a lot of things to go right you to need get a, this perfectly. A, a lot of things to go right. But there was nothing wrong with Studio 60 that couldn't have been solved by better writing. All right, social network really quick because okay. we have to go. I didn't realize you had to leave. No problem. Social um, network. Um, uh, I went to, uh, uh, I had lunch uh, with uh, a studio head, with, with I don't know why I'm being, with, with Stacey Snyder, um, uh, who right now is the head of Fox, but at the time she was the head of uh, Universal. Uh, and she said, I just got this book pitch um, uh, that, that you might be interested in. Oh, the, the Ben Mesrick book? Yes. He hadn't written the book yet, but the publisher was sending the pitch for the book to Hollywood Studios, hoping to get the helping to get it set up before the book was even written. Um, and uh, and so Stacy said there was uh, a, a lawsuit. Um, the, there are these other guys claiming that they uh, were the ones who invented Facebook. And just from what she was describing to me, uh, I, I, I was in. Uh, I wanted to do this. Uh, and, I, and I think that- And you didn't know Fincher was in yet? Fincher wasn't in yet. Um, uh, nobody was in yet but me. Uh, I, I was now in. And in fact, I, I wasn't going to wait until Ben had written the book. I was going to start writing now. So Ben and I were essentially writing uh, at the same time. Then, um, and, and and by the way, it didn't end up uh, uh, Universal, it ended up at Sony, where Amy Pascal at the time was uh, the chairwoman. And Amy and the producer, Scott Rudin, uh, and this would be the first of now many times uh, that I've worked with Scott, uh, they thought that I should direct the movie, uh, which I something I'd never done before. I'd never directed anything. Uh, and that scared the hell out of me. Uh, and we said, uh, you know what? Before we pull the trigger uh, on this, let's just let's just let David Fincher pass, okay? Let's let's send it to David. He'll pass. He passes on everything, and then I'll swallow hard and uh, uh, and do this. Uh, so it was messengered over to David, and about two and a half hours later, I got an email saying, "Aaron, it's David Fincher. I'm going to direct the Social Network. Can I come over?" Uh, and it was the beginning of one of the best uh, creative relationships I've ever had. And he's a genius. Yes, he is. Uh, I hate using the word genius, but it actually no, seems he, like he's a genius. He is. And he was he's a guy you would like very much. And if you can get him to to do this podcast, do it. You think he would do it? I, I do. I know that he's a big fan of yours. Oh wow. Um, That'd uh, be great. He uh uh he's he he's I have a, a lot of questions about the game. Um ask I him all the questions what the in the world about the game. In that movie. He's a, <laughs> he'll he'll try to I tell you. Know. He uh he's a great <laughs> sports fan, knows a lot about sports, and he really he directs, David Fincher? Yeah. Um, uh, huge sports fan. And in fact, he, uh, in his spare time, uh, directs uh, a lot of the Nike and Gatorade commercials. Oh, um, I always heard rumors about that. Yeah. They keep it kind of low. Yeah. And he would tell me stories of like, he's doing a Gatorade commercial with Adrian Peterson, you know, and it's Adrian Peterson 
running the length of the field and just avoiding defenders like crazy. He's flipping them over uh, and everything. And of course, neither the NFL or the Minnesota Vikings are going to allow anyone to touch Adrian Peterson, yeah, right? Yeah. So David's using Adrian Peterson for the close-ups and no one can touch uh, uh, Adrian. And then for wider shots, he's got 20 Adrian Petersons just you know, getting playing annihilated. college ball <laughs> and he turns to the defenders, a hundred bucks to anyone who could knock his helmet off. Uh, <laughs> just out there. Oh my God. Yeah, those poor guys. They, I mean- so uh, anyway, D- David is a genius. Um, that uh, movie is amazing. Uh, By the way, also of one of the most rewatchable movies of all time. I appreciate it. It's one that. of those like you pop in and you're like, oh, oh, this scene. All right. I'll do 20 minutes here. He's got an incredible eye and he's got an incredible brain. Uh, and uh, and I love him. Did you, you're going in that movie and you're thinking, obviously, if you watch the social network, Zuckerberg's not a great guy in that movie. You're not watching that going, oh, this is a good guy. He's he's a he's a complicated guy. It, I wouldn't say he's a good guy, but then no. you watch what's happened the last five years. It's like, oh, maybe we should have watched the social network a little more closely. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, you know, Zuckerberg, right in the social network, that was uh, the, the first time I'd written an antihero uh, in uh, in Mark Zuckerberg. And an antihero isn't a villain. Uh, they, leave, they, they, they live somewhere... Uh, uh, between that. And if you're going to write, and this is what I discovered with that, but if you're going to write an antihero, uh, you can't judge that character. Uh, you have to, as the writer, you have to be able to defend that character and you have to write that character like they're making their case to God why they should be allowed into heaven. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I we, have, we could go 20 minutes on this. Can we talk about what your play? Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, it's To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, we just opened on Broadway uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, I've heard of it. It's <laughs> it's it's a it's a pretty well known book. Uh, we we all read it in school, and uh, it's it's tough to talk about without giving spoilers. I, I will tell you that Jeff Daniels is playing Atticus Finch, and it's a tour de force performance. Yes, uh, uh, my guy indeed. It's a phenomenal cast of twenty four. Uh, uh, directed by Bartlett Sher, who is a great director of wonderfully theatrical uh, uh, productions. In his spare time, when he's not directing on Broadway, he directs operas for the Met. Uh, but um, this is sort of a new look at To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it's not meant to be a museum piece or a, a piece of nostalgia or an homage uh, to anything. Um, as soon as the curtain goes up, uh, because of what you're looking at and because of what you're hearing, you understand um, that uh, uh, this is going to be a new experience for you. Wow. It's not going to awesome. take you back to eighth grade. We didn't get to talk about the newsroom and we get to talk about uh, well, the, the internet. And it's, but you, so you have to come back. I, I would I love some, to come back. I left some um, meat on the bone. Give, give one tip to the fledgling writers out there. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, here it is. Um, uh, find a copy of the screenplay of a movie that you like. Uh, put the movie on TV or on your computer screen with a screenplay in your lap and read along with the movie and start to notice what the movie was like when it was on the page, uh, uh, how how someone wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, uh, for instance. That was my last question. Our friend William Goldman died. I know. Uh, Give Uh, me one one Goldman story and then we're done. Sure. Um, Well, well, first of all, let me say, I I think he's the best 
uh, a screenwriter who ever lived. I was lucky enough that he took me under his wing uh, when when I was in my 20s. Um, uh, but uh, one William Goldman story when, uh, when there are so many. Uh, okay, uh, when he was writing uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he had a secret, and this is also for, uh, for young screenwriters. It's great to have a secret. Um, and, and what I mean is something that you know about these characters that nobody else knows that's going to come as a big surprise. Uh, now, here's a Butch and Sundance spoiler coming in three. Now, people two. saw it. Okay. Uh, Bill Goldman knew that Sundance Kid didn't know how to swim. Um, and so he just couldn't wait to get to uh, uh, that cliff. And that's what you want to be doing when, when you're a writer. You want to be writing, I just can't wait to get to the edge of that cliff. I, I went to his memorial service. Mm-hmm. And I left with a guest to go because there was a Knicks game. And I want to go to the Knicks game because it was Giannis. And I feel like he would have approved. There's no doubt about it. And then the Knicks won in overtime. And I was like, this is weird. Because the Knicks suck. Yeah, no business beating Giannis. Uh, And I was like, this is only happening because of Goldman. You ever read a book that Goldman wrote with Mike Lupa? My favorite sports book. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for doing this. This is great. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. All All right. Thanks so much to Aaron Sorkin and Joe House. Thanks to the New England Patriots for making my weekend this weekend when they beat the Chiefs. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Simply Safe. 2019 feels like a good year to ask yourself, is my home as safe as it could be? And if you think, well, maybe this is the year to fix that with Simply Safe. Simply Safe is making it easier than ever to get 24-7 home security, no contracts or catches. The safest place on earth should be your own home. They help more than 3 million people feel that way every day. Get started by going to simplysafe.com slash BS. That is Simply Safe with two eyes. Million dollar picks for this week. Rams plus three and a half. Million bucks on that. Pats plus three. Million bucks on that as well. Pats, Rams, the rematch. 17 years later, 2001, 2019. I guess that's 18 years. I can't do football. so confusing with the math. So the Rams Super Bowl is to February 2002. Pats, so this would be 17 years later. Feels like 25 so glad to have Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in my life. Kyle, let's do this. Let's do let's it. Go. Come on. Oh. Come on. Go, Pats. 